0: or had a family fight. At that time, I seemed more interested in small things to keep, not sexual. I took some drill bits, a couple of tools, a hatchet, perhaps some ink pens or odds and ends. I found a pillowcase to carry them. I left the house and hid the pillowcase in the nearby bush to pick up as I left the area. I drove home, getting there before Paula, and told her about the layoff. Rader opined that his obsession with home invasions may have been motivated by a desire to upset the security of other families while the proverbial rug had been ripped out from beneath his. He described his mentality and methodology. Control of the house was the key element, what they thought was safe in their castles. I also think the early peeping tom experiences and the boyer feelings I got around a home were very strong to me. Without employment, and waiting for classes at Wichita State University to begin, I was pretty low. I had time to think dark thoughts. I was walking around the Twin Lakes Mall area. It was very cold. In prior years, I'd twice tried to kidnap someone and had failed, but I wanted to try again. Raider did not kill on impulse. He was highly organized, deliberate, and cautious. He would stalk a victim for as long as it took to get a sense of their routine in terms of what and when they did things. He would also keep tabs to see who they kept company with. Was a female victim always with a man who could defend her? Was there no man at all? That was much more convenient for BTK. One example was a bank teller that caught his eye. She worked at Twin Lakes Bank, where he and his wife Paula had done some business. Here's the story as he tells it. I knew when she had a lunch hour. This bank had routines. People with routines are vulnerable to me. I had watched people come and go at the bank into the parking lot. I could easily watch from the Sears store. I had prowled and trolled the Twin Lakes area for some time. I would don my green jeans, blue or green sweatshirt, wind jacket, walking shoes, coat, and ski mask. I carried a knife, tape, cord, 357 Mag Ruger, western style, and walk the mall and surrounding areas looking for a victim. I imagine forcing myself to their car, making them lie down in the front seat, and quickly tying or taping their hands. I would drive away to an old barn, a farm site northwest of Valley Center. There I would do my sexual murder, then hide the body. The bank tower parked her car across the street of 21st north many cars there could shield me in hiding i knew her car timed like a clock she entered her car i approached and tried to force myself in she screamed and fought back i finally gave up and told her i'm sorry i was trying to take a vehicle and leave the area it was a ruse that calmed her down i told her i was going to leave her alone and i left quickly this was a dilemma for me. I chose to flee instead of attacking daylight, heading northwest along the other shopping area. I walked fast and then ran. Beyond one store's alley, I hid all my items, hoping no one would find them, including my coat and ski mask. Now I wore only a wind jacket. I walked to a fast food place and ordered some food to hide my deeds. I was sure the police would be in the area. then moved slowly from business to business back to my vehicle moving with everyone else to not draw attention cold and frustrated i headed back to the alley quickly picked up my hidden items and drove home later i fantasized about her and me at the farm site perhaps i drew a picture or made a drawing of how it was going to be afterward i seldom went to the bank i always had an excuse if i did go I wore sunglasses and avoided that teller. I made a rule to never return to an area where I had tried and failed. Hit by financial hardships, Paula became the sole breadwinner in the household. And it was a scenario that left Rader feeling even worse about his worth as a father and husband. He was due to undergo studies at Wichita State University on the GI Bill. His failure to succeed at kidnapping only contributed to his depression and the deficit in self-esteem that afflicted him at this time. He decided it was time to revamp his strategy. I decided that I would take a victim in a house. I would use the cover of a house or garage to get them into a car to take out to the farm. At this time, I spotted Julie Otero. My main theme was to hang someone. The act of hanging was sexually exciting to me. The elements of being bound or straining with a rope or noose around the neck, rags bound, and no escape. For self-gratification, I'd hang to myself to the point of almost passing out. In my plan for the Oteros, I had an old barn in mind. I would take the mother and kids from the house and bring them there. We could be completely alone, and I could better control them. I loved old barns and there were several located around Wichita that I could use for hanging victims. The Oteros were picked due to my trolling, stalking, then walking in. I like the Hispanic people. The females look sexy to me. Once spotted, the stalking stage takes place. The trolling stage is when you're trolling for them. The stalking stage is when you've walked in on them. I had watched the houses in the Otero neighborhood. Even if they were gone on the day I picked, I would take up the next one. I could change to someone else. I bought rough hemp rope, one quarter inch thick, at the drugstore at the southeast corner of Hillside and East Central, a favorite place to thumb through detective magazines and shop for bondage items. Much like in Cold Blood, the two killers pre-shopping before they attacked the Clutter family. Rader had his own terminology for his victims, some he referred to as projects others as hits he would refer to the otero operation as project little Mex. early stages of this project included driving and walking by the otero homestead a few times he also concocted a ruse he would tell the matriarch that he was a wanted man his reasoning was that if he was already known by the law he would never take the risk of committing murder and she would thereby assume she would survive the attack as raider put it you win if people think they are going to be okay. They are going to be out of harm's way. Basically, there's going to be a minimum struggle, and you win. On the day of the assault on the Ontario family, Raider was prepared and antsy to begin. He waited for his wife to go to work impatiently. Once he was safely out of the area, he put on his Air Force parka and drove into Wichita. He described how he felt that morning. Work fantasies at play. My hit kit was all ready. What was in my mind? A high, like an adrenaline rush. Something had taken over and was in control. I had pre-planned the Oteros, but didn't know what to expect inside or how it was going to happen. I dressed in my Air Force parka and drove to the area in my white Chevy Impala. I parked in the parking lot of a store at Edgemoor and Central. I crossed the street and walked north on the first side street west of Edgemoor to their house, 803. I'm partial to the number three. I tried to pick houses with three or six in the number. My heart beat fast. This had been more of a game, daring myself and pushing the limit. The fantasy had begun to crystallize sharply. Having committed the family's daily routine to memory, he arrived promptly at 8.20 a.m. He knew the patriarch left for work by eight. The older kids, whom he claimed he had not known about, went to school. The mother and the youngest child stayed home. The mother was vulnerable, just how he liked her. It took weeks to collect all the information he had after he saw her for the first time. He savored the anticipation, every second of it. He walked around the house to see it from every angle. He knew he could kill the little boy easily. It would be different with the females. He would take his time. He would savor it. He left nothing to chance on the selection process. As he put it, these people were selected. He jumped the fence and entered through the backyard. He cut the phone wire to eliminate Josephine's only chance at rescue. He hesitated when he saw paw prints in the snow. He nearly aborted. His thoughts raced at the possibilities presented by intervention by the family's dog. Inner debate over whether to go through with it, but it was like a snowball rolling down a hill. I actually had second thoughts. Seeing the dog prints in the snow, if they let it out, it surely would bark at me or attack me. I wasn't afraid, but I could not predict its actions. I had my cords with me, and some were already pre-knotted. I had a gun a 22 LR Woodsman auto target pistol, but I had not yard-cased the house. If I had, and had seen the dog, I probably would not have pursued the Oteros. My drive-by had been to find out who lived there. I had even visited the small library at Oliver and Central and found the telephone number in the book. I had called them and a female answered. I gave them the wrong number excuse. I had planned on taking them hostage in the garage. Mrs. Otero and the kids I had watched them the three go to school a couple of times following them I had it all planned but did not know about the dog also the garage door was open facing the street I heard voices inside I thought about leaving but what if someone saw me exit the backyard then the door opened too late the back door opened and my nightmare and theirs became one gun in hand I went in All except Mr. Otero were present. He came from the bedroom at the sound of the wife's voice. Mr. Otero thought it was a joke put up by his brother-in-law. He also noticed my Air Force parka. I quickly grabbed him by the back collar. I showed him the gun and told him it was a 22 lr with hollow points and a hair trigger. He knew it was no joke. To ease tension, there was some friendly talk about the Air Force years, tech school, etc., I told them I needed money and food and was wanted by police. I was AWOL from the Air Force. I located the car keys, the purse and his wallet. They told me the car was empty on gas. I guess they didn't have very much money. Mr. Otero said I could take the typewriter from the southwest bedroom and hawk it for gas money and just leave them alone. There was no panic yet. After I got in the house, I lost control of it. I basically panicked. The dog was a real problem, so I asked Mr. Otero to get the dog out. It was a short-haired dog that didn't like cold, so they first put it in the bedroom or basement, but it carried on so. It finally had to go outside. I held on to Mr. Otero's collar and watched Mrs. Otero closely, threatening them all if they didn't cooperate. Mr. Otero told the family to be calm and do as I said. Rader took Joseph Otero's watch. He doesn't remember whether he asked him to take it off in the kitchen or if he removed it from his corpse. After initially waffling about whether he should kill them, he decided there was nothing else to do. They could ID me. I wore no mask, although I had one, and maybe I had forgot to pull it down. It was a stocking cap type ski mask. I felt like leaving them as they were, but something dark told me to murder them. They could recognize me. I made a decision to go ahead and put them down, to strangle them. I had brought a first aid roll of adhesive tape, used it at first on all of the members, but they complained of numbness and hurt. I redid it with white clothesline cord. Later, I switched to black electrical tape or duct tape. People bound with tape were sexually exciting to me. They started complaining about being tied up and I re-loosened the bonds a couple of times. I tried to make Mr. Otero as comfortable as I could. Apparently, he had a cracked rib from a car accident, so I put a pillow down for his head and a parka or a coat underneath him. When all four were bound, I decided to gag each, using pillowcases, socks, and T-shirts. I remember Josephine's long hair getting in the way. Mrs. Otero asked why they were being gagged, and to keep her calm, I told her I'd called the police after I cleared the area. Due to his injury, I tied Mr. Otero's hand with tape to the bedpost leg, northwest on the bed. I tied Mrs. Otero, then Josephine, and finally Joseph. My hands were encased in rubber gloves, so they were tired. I was sweating. I think I wrapped the rope around Mr. Otero's neck. I had never strangled before, didn't realize how long it took, and the victim was fighting. Then I strangled Mrs. Otero. Once she quit moving, I let pressure up. Next was Josephine. She asked, what's going on? I told her, I had put her parents to sleep, and you're next. I strangled her until she quit moving. By that time, Joseph Jr. was up and crying, and Mr. Otero was waking up. I decided to use the plastic bags. I then proceeded to Joseph Jr. and placed the bag over his head. By then, Ms. Otero was awake. She realized the fatal threat to her and her family as Joseph struggled. She pleaded with me to stop. Josephine was still out. Mr. Otero was struggling, trying to rub a hole in the bag on the bedpost. Mrs. Otero was getting hysterical and making a lot of noise. I about decided to leave. But since I had already crossed the death path, I strangled her with a clove hitch. Before I applied pressure, she said, May God have mercy on your soul. I covered her face with a flower print pillowcase. I found a belt and applied it to Mr. Otero's neck over the bag. He quit moving. The plastic bags were the one you buy in a store, a gallon size, white. I used gloves to place them in another bag that I had carried. Realizing the the hole-in-the-bag problem, I found a T-shirt and another plastic bag, picked up Joseph Jr., and moved him to a bed in the center bedroom. I covered his head with the T-shirt and bag and tied it shut. He struggled, rolled off the bed, and then quit. The police report mentioned a chair that maybe I'd sat on to watch him die, but that's not true. It could be that I placed it there to keep him still while putting on a T-shirt and bag in place or against the bed to keep him from rolling off. Many people think I tortured the Oteros and killed them in a sadistic way by reviving them, but the multiple strangle marks were there because I hadn't learned how to strangle quickly. The bags helped to kill faster. But I had used bags in self-bondage and knew the helpless feeling of no air and no way to get the bag off. In self-bondage, you had to be very careful with bags and restraints of hands. I had strangled cats, but had never strangled anyone before. So I really don't know how much pressure you had to put on a person or how long it would take. Both their hands and their feet were tied up. I had worked quick. I strangled Mrs. Otero and she went out. I thought she was dead. I strangled Josephine. She passed out. I thought she was dead, too. And then I went over and put a bag on Junior's head. And then, if I remember right, Mrs. Otero came back. I went back and strangled her again and finally killed her. After Joseph Junior died, the house was quiet. Josephine was still out. I had not put a cord or rope on her neck or a bag. This is where my dark, sadistic self came to play. I wanted to hang her. I had made a rope noose prior, a rough hemp rope, and by chance had put four loops in the noose. With hanging in mind, I searched for the house, found the basement sewer pipe, and attached the hangman's rope to it. I then returned to her. She was awake but lethargic. I picked her up and carried her to the basement rec room. She was not crying or protesting or fighting me. I removed her pants, pulled her panties down, either cut or tore her bra open, exposing her breasts. Then pulled her knit shirt back down, retied her ankles and knees, and attached the rope to her wrists. I asked her if her parents had a camera, as I wanted a picture of her bound. Later on, I obtained a Polaroid camera, the same one I used for my self-portraits of bondage. She said no, so I moved her onto the floor below the hangman's noose. I told her she would go to sleep and be in heaven with her folks and brother. Her eyes showed shock. I applied the noose and lifted her up and tightened the rope, or tied it off. I was overwhelmed with excitement. I touched her breasts and masturbated. The act of hanging alone is bad, and the media played this big with her toes only a few inches off the floor. It just happened that this is the way she ended up. It wasn't planned to look that way. In the aftermath, Raider went about employing his methods of damage control. I went through the house, kind of cleaned it up. It's called the right hand rule. You go from room to room. I picked everything up. I locked the back door before I left. The dog was still in the yard. One thing the police never discovered, I was so thirsty. I was encased with sweat. I started this ritual at the Oteros, taking a glass from the kitchen, getting a drink, wiping it dry, and replacing it. I would do this at other places as well. It became sort of a secret trademark. I cleaned the house up a bit, made sure everything was packed up. After checking the house, I turned the thermostat up to help throw the time of death off. I read this in a book. I had taken Otero's watch, an aviation-type watch, and a transistor radio I found somewhere in the house. Grader would later deny to the police that he took a radio. I kept the watch many years, wore it occasionally, and finally threw it into the Chisholm Creek on Hydraulic near 37th North. I used that creek for dumping small victim items. The radio I sold at a garage sale. It was bright and sunny when I left and I worried about the mailman and people on the street seeing me. I had asked the Oteros when they got their mail, and time was running out. I needed to depart. I remember watching where I stepped as I proceeded to the garage. I started their car, and yes, it was out of gas. If I had kidnapped them with it, not knowing, that would have been a big problem. If I had kidnapped them with it, not knowing, that would have been a big problem. I backed out made sure to conceal my face, and drove west on Murdoch, over to Ninth, then down Oliver to Dillon's. I entered the South Alley and parked in the lot. I got out and started walking south along King's Row. Along the way, I threw the keys away in a drain. I had parked in the thrift shop parking lot at the southwest corner of Central and North Edgemoor. Just then, I realized my buck knife was missing. A dilemma, what to do. Had I left it in Otero's car, had I locked the car door after I wiped it clean, was the knife back at the Otero's home? I decided not to walk to either place. I drove my Chevy Impala back to their house and into their garage. I quickly checked the backyard. The dog was unhappy with me, but kept its distance. I found the knife by the cut telephone line box. I picked it up and drove home. Though Rader had just lived a long-held fantasy of torture and murder, he was neither elated nor fulfilled. Neurologically, a headache left him smarting. Emotionally, he was ruled by fear. He had been very cautious, but he still wondered if he could have left behind a minor detail that would leave the proverbial trail of breadcrumbs that would lead police straight to his doorstep. To avoid this, he went to a nearby stretch of forest to burn all the notes and sketches he made while he planned the murders. He threw in the rope he used. It was the first rope he used to commit a murder. He threw it to the flames with great reluctance. He knew he must burn it. However, because after reading numerous true crime books, he understood that the smallest details can become incriminating evidence. He finished in time to be home before his wife returned from work. In her eyes, He was the same. Good old Dennis Rader. Inwardly, he was a changed man. He crossed a threshold and emerged on the other side a monster. That threshold he called the Death Path. When Rader finally had time to himself, he recorded the events at the Otero House in his journal. He devised a moniker for himself. Most serial killers had them. In most cases, the monitor was treated by journalists or law enforcement. Dennis didn't want to leave it to them. He finally settled on one: BTK: Bind them, torture them, kill them. He anticipated notoriety and media exposure of the kind that Jack the Ripper had attracted, as he concluded, "Once you do this, you have an identity." He couldn't wait to see what the police would tell the media he saw himself as worthy of the next In Cold Blood, a classic book by Truman Capote about legendary criminals. He knew that the crime he committed deserved pervasive coverage. Sometime in the distant future, he intimated that he fantasized about enslaving all four of his Otero victims in the afterlife. Each one would be assigned a different role in order to fulfill his sexual fantasies. He detailed these roles to police. Joseph Otero would be a bodyguard. Julie would bathe and serve Dennis. The children would exist solely to be sex toys for Dennis's amusement. Dennis would teach principles and practices of S&M to Josephine. Rader has described the process of becoming a murderer, which began with fantasies as a young man and ended with a body count. Rader describes his evolution as a murderer. They say, idle hands, the devil's playpen. I didn't go to bed one night, wake up, and say, this is it. For fire to burn, you have to have three elements, heat, fuel, and air. The burning desire to increase the sexual fantasy role, I believe, much like a male after a female for sex. The relief of the big G, orgasm, but also sharing time together as lasting dark memories. I believe factor X played a role as perverted sex factor X is the name Raider gave to his insatiable and unrestrained compulsion to commit murder I don't recall the BHS victims as loving memories but they're still very crystal clear if I think about them like men and woman with marriage you collect memorabilia to help keep memories to build a long lasting fire you need more than one piece of fuel I had many PJs, but not all hits. What would have made that murder bigger and hotter? More air? Let's say the air is opportunity. Recent job loss, winter, time alone at home, time to fantasize, time to invent ruses, time to prowl, and time to strike. I had night classes, could study late. Air is time alone. Fantasy is heat. I think it's the stalking and fantasies. You dream, act it out in your mind, plan, get a date, and try. If you replay an event in your mind long enough, you come to believe it. The key, I think, the real spark to ignite the bad fires, is idle hands. Without time constraints, other projects would have succeeded. Finally, at Otero, Josephine reminded me of a Mickey Mouse female. I had fantasized over and over, referring to Mouseketeer Annette Funicello of this female being in bondage helpless, with me in complete control of her life, even back in the late fifties. I was nine or ten when I saw Annette Funicello on the Mickey Mouse Club. She grew and developed into a starlet with a woman's figure. Millions of boys my age were smitten. I had a terrible crush on her. Her voice dark hair with an italian flair she quickly became my first mental stalking later her beach party movies added to my lusting fuel many a night i lay in bed fantasizing about her in a california lighthouse or castle in my dungeon of death to pretty girls i collected tv magazine pictures of her my mom took a magazine modern romance starlet review They became fuel for my upcoming slick ads collection. I didn't have to buy them, or I was embarrassed to do so. So I sneak read them at home and then awaited the day that Mom would put them in the basement. They would disappear into my world. In many ways, AF started me on the female stalker road. I became the werewolf to chase her down on a full moon, the Dracula to bite her my teeth sinking into the wonderful flesh of upcoming womanhood, or the mummy wrapping her up tight, defenseless, at the mercy of me. Strangulation proved to be far more taxing than he thought it would be. Determined to strengthen his hands, Rader bought a rubber ball to use for squeezing exercises. A label on the ball read, Life is good. He explains what he saw as the necessity of developing the muscles in his hands. I saw in a movie about a minotaur, serial killer, toughening up the hands. I export balls at home, work, in my vehicle to practice and exercise my hands. I do have large hands. Exercise with a handball helps blood circulation and to keep the hands fit. There was excitement in trying something dangerous. Then it happens, and afterward, you wish it hadn't. It's like playing in quicksand. There's fear and excitement, but then you're stuck. Raider was influenced by the crime that was documented by author Truman Capote in his classic true crime story, In Cold Blood. At the time that Rader heard about the murders that were described in the book, he was 14 years old and in a car with a girl about whom he had had sexual fantasies. She had been a target of his voyeurism. The car's radio broadcasted information about the murders. Rader would go on to incorporate this influence into his murders. He was especially taken with the idea of using ropes to bind the victims. As he recalled, I couldn't get it out of my mind. I wanted to do that to the girl. The murders were committed in 1959 and a film about the events aired in 1972. Rader is fairly certain the movie motivated him to some degree. I probably did see it then. If you recall, Haycock and Smith were shopping for restraints. That hit me hard, for I bought adhesive tape rolls and nylon clothesline cord, also gallon-sized white plastic bags. So my subconscious mind had a role in thinking about and buying certain items. I also bought one-fourth of an inch hemp rope and one-fourth of an inch cotton clothesline rope. I used these on the Oteros. I remember the news about Hickok's and Smith's executions in 1965 and thought that I would want to be hanged if caught. Raider's hit kit consisted of some of the same items that Dick Hickok and Perry Smith, the killers written about in In Cold Blood, had used. Tape, binding cords, a gun, a map, mental map. He compared the basement of the family murdered in the film to the torture dungeon he constructed in his fantasies, a did bondage in basements, at home on Seneca Street. This was his parents' home. He took Josephine down to the basement of her house to replicate the excitement he derived from his own experience of being bound. He hung her from a sewer pipe. As he put it, I used the sewer pipe for gratification. I knew they were sturdy. Rader reflected on his childhood from the perspective of an armchair psychologist. Our childhood years, I feel, determine much of what happens in adulthood, imprinting messages like computer chips. We are programmed on the brain in ways that we are totally unaware of. Sins pick up according to our weaknesses, and sometimes it runs in the family line. Mine were selfishness, sex, and control. Dennis Rader knew since he was a child that he would become a murderer. He referred to his little friend or the monster in his brain. He has said that it was always present. It was always urging him to act on his fantasies. I first started seeing or thinking monsters at age three to four. I can see a figure in everyday things. often wonder if that had something to do with me later. I didn't want to be helpless. And back of his family's home was a water tank, typically used for horses and cattle. Occasionally, Dennis would go out to the tank by himself to cool off. He would also go there to bind himself and indulge in sexual fantasies. Sometimes he would even tie his hands and ankles to achieve an orgasm. Dennis wasn't the only member of the family to exhibit cruel tendencies. A cousin's wife hated cats and would drown them in gun sacks. She believed they held secret, mystical, and evil powers, and that was the justification she felt for putting them down. Dennis has conceded that this may have influenced him to seek cats as bondage victims. He drowned a cat or two himself. Between the ages of 12 and 13, Dennis began to fantasize about bondage. I kept those dark thoughts to myself. When I did that, I was lonely. I felt I had no friends. Even my folks, the only sermon I remember goes along these lines. A man had the most beautiful pond in the country, in a green valley, surrounded by lush trees and colorful flowers and green grass, crystal clear and cool. He guarded it with his life, allowing no animals or people to drink or use the pond's water, even the birds. One day, chasing the birds away, he slipped fell in and drowned his selfishness had killed him in a way that's what happened to me although i'm not dead to the living world and my family i'm a lost soul Rader's relationship with his mother was not close and he received less nurturing than punishment from her she humiliated him when she did his laundry and discovered the stain left behind from his first ejaculation After telling him that God would come and kill him for masturbating, she tried to beat him. He fought back. She held his hands behind his back and used his father's belt to whip him. He said it hurt, but that Sparky, the pet name he gave to his penis, liked it. Almost immediately afterwards, she became remorseful. She said, Oh my God, what have I done? She kissed him and he enjoyed a close moment with her. This may have laid the foundation for Raider's passion for bondage and dominance, scenarios, pain and pleasure, discipline and love. Mom would use a belt or switch on us, chasing us down. It hurt, and I didn't like being spanked, like I said in the story, but I liked the chase. We thought it was a game. It hurt, but it was exciting. So in the story I wrote, sex and spanking go together. Aspects of his mother's behavior and patterns of living would continue to influence his sexual proclivities. She also had a white slip that she kept hidden that I found one day, so I grew more curious about sex. I always loved satin. I touched it all the time on my baby blankets. When I found the slip, I had a great urge to masturbate into it. If they found it, it would mean instant suicide for me. I put it away unharmed and found some of mom's old panties. I used them and threw them away. It was probably the reason why I took women's clothes and why I liked to look, feel, and take things from people's closets. I fantasized about dark-haired women, like mom, in a white slip, bound. So in a way, mom became a fantasy sex symbol to me, although she never was a fantasy victim. We batted heads at times, but I loved her dearly. Her weakness was the tin men. They were the salesmen who came with their wares. She would invite them in as they made their pitch, a ruse I might have picked up. I saw them talk their way in and persuade her. Another member of Dennis' family to express a cruel streak was his brother, Jeff. Jeff frequently got into trouble and had aggressive tendencies. He enjoyed torturing the family's dog. He placed it in the drier ones, though without heat. The dog was disabled for weeks. Dennis developed a penchant for reading death stories. His maternal grandmother subscribed to Red Book magazine. When I was 12 or 13, I remember a story about a young man killing his girlfriend. I believe he strangled her. When I heard it, I was sexually aroused. As I read it, I felt uncomfortable. Yet, I had a strong need to know. I had already started mild bondage. This was the first sex story, or the way I perceived it. He killed her by stuffing leaves down her throat and strangled her. I recall that magazine even today. Redbrook had some racy articles. That may be why I started later seeking out crime thrillers and true detective type magazines. I liked the ones with a girl in trouble on the cover. He also enjoyed the damsel in distress narrative in other media, like in film and television. If the story featured a woman who was tied up and tortured, they were sure to count Dennis Rader as a fan. Dennis has professed to have an interest and belief in the occult. I do believe in a world between death and the everlasting, a mysterious, secret, puzzling world of ghosts, fairies, changelings, and demons. Of those, I often wonder, if I became a changeling, a child secretly exchanged for another, one that one day would walk a dark path. Raver has seriously considered the possibility that early childhood head trauma could be partially responsible for his skewed perspective on reality and his homicidal tendencies. My mom fell off a horse when she was pregnant with me. She told me she had dropped me on my head when I was six to eight months old. I turned blue but not taken to the hospital. The right side of my head hit hard. That may have scrambled the network. Rader struggled in school. He eventually developed a talent for mathematics, but struggled with language and continues to do so. His missives to the media and police about his murders were blemished with spelling and grammatical errors. He has indicated that when his glucose levels are low, he can become irritable or critical. He was 17 years old when he received a second brain injury. He drove his car into a ditch one night and his head slammed into the windshield. He said this of the incident. This wreck was the start of a dark spin. Dennis Rader's eroticism of bondage emerged early in his life. When he and his friends played cowboys and Indians, he enjoyed being tied to one of the earthstats horses. By the time he was in grade six, He was having bondage fantasies. By grade eight, he was drawing illustrations of his bondage fantasies and practicing it on himself. Any depiction in the media of a woman being bound by rope excited him. Even in cartoon shows, he was too shy to ask girls for dates. In his fantasies, he would find some way to possess and punish them. Whether the girl lived or died in these visions, it was entirely up to Dennis, and he loved that power. It meant that at least in some realm, he was winning with women. Raiders struggled with contradictory feelings, a process he refers to as cubing. During my cowboy Indian years, I would save the girl from the bad guy. I watched Dudley Do-Right, a mellow fellow who rescued women from evildoers. The tying or controlling of a person onto a track was sexually exciting. But saving a person was a thrill also. He would often go out into his family's farm structures and bind himself at the midsection. The tighter he bound himself, the greater was the high he felt. Though he believed what he was doing was wrong, he also could not stop himself. He didn't just do it to himself, though. As a kid, if I tied my female cousin up after she was captured, the excitement increased. Sometimes putting them in a pretend jail, prison, box, or wrapped in a blanket sparked the excitement. Slowly this developed, and in the fall or late summer, at the age of 10 or 11, maybe 12, I started window peeping. First, I peeped on my tomboy girlfriend that lived across the street, then on female cousins, and then my neighbor's houses. I started wandering more often as I approached age 11 to 12. I bought a telescope in the late 50s and begun searching the neighborhood for my distant tree spots or I would hide in the grass or wooded area and just watch people. The braver I became, the bolder, with more peeping. One night, I slipped out of the house and even started to remove screens from my next-door neighbor's back door. I could hear them sleeping a summer night, their windows open. I was becoming a prowler. In the fourth grade, I had a problem with the school or teacher over the milk program. We were required to drink white milk every morning or at lunchtime. It was usually cool, but the only way I liked milk was very cold, or if it had chocolate or vanilla and sugar in it. Many days I refused to drink it and thus lost recess or other privileges. This was the start of my drawing of blackboard horror places and girl traps. As the kids played outside, I was left alone or was with my close friend Bobby. I recall reading about Bluebeard, H.H. Holmes, at an early age. It seems I recall drawing some of White City back in fifth grade, while the rest of the kids played outside. I and Bobby would draw castles of doom. We both loved monster movies and scary stuff. Our fantasies ran wild, with a whole blackboard to design on. In my secret dungeon, I had a DTPG room, Death to pretty girls. The dungeon was like a barn, with wooden beams, chains, and things a barn would have. I think this was the start of terror and domination on females, fueled by hurt and dislike of 4th and 5th grade teachers, and sexually feeling about my 6th grade teacher, and sexual feeling about my 6th grade teacher. I did not get along with my 5th grade teacher, Ms. S. She was sort of mean, very strict, And if we couldn't do math or something on the blackboard, she would embarrass us in front of the class. I learned to dislike her, and I developed a sexual fantasy of her in bondage. So it was either just before or right after we started sixth grade, watching the backyard of my former teacher, perhaps on a sunny weekend, hoping to spy on her. I, for some reason, took ropes with me. My fantasy had started. I was going to tie her up. But in the tree row, hidden, I tied myself up, and the tighter I did so, the more excited I became. Then I suddenly had my first male release. I had not fondled myself, but it happened. I got a stain in my boxers that I could not remove. Mom saw it later in the laundry and told Dad. That sort of thing was not allowed for good Christian boys. He told me it wasn't right. I was embarrassed again. Henceforth ropes and sexual activity on myself became my secret way of release we had an old bed in the basement and i would sneak down there and tie myself up and release into old clothes and tissues raider became a master of knots from his days as a boy scout from collecting string i learned to tie knots early ones from fishing days later from being a boy scout i learned my favorite the clove hitch as well as the double half hitch the square knot, and the bowline knot. As the bondage theme grew, string turned to cord, ropes, straps, leather belts, tape, chains, devices, and plastic. The hangman's noose excited me later on, perhaps from the westerns, or the criminals, or toughies. I did use it on small animals at times to heighten my sexual feelings, namely in my early teen years, or preteen. Later, I used the noose to do self-erotica, asphyxiation, to the point of almost passing out. I would wrap my neck in a sheet or towel to prevent red marks and rope burns on my neck, and always had a way to get out of bondage with hands, pulling tightly up, my feet or toes barely on the floor, or I step off a step with sexual release very fast. Rader cites a period from 1959 to 1960 as the time when he committed his first breaking and entry, or as he calls it, BE. With my family asleep, I very carefully made a dummy-looking bedroll and stole into the night, walking quickly northward to the Riverview's School. The school, like others, had started installing simple alarm systems to prevent BEs, so the idea was preconceived. Wouldn't it be thrilling to do a BEE? Seek out a female's desk, touch her things, and be a sort of physical voyeur, and maybe take a small, not missed item? The clutter incident could have fueled my thoughts. Plus, being a prowler, like all males that age, girls were on my mind. I brought along some rope, tools, flashlight. It was taped over except a very small pinhole. I had a hunting knife and always a good pocket knife. I think I took some cheap round cotton gloves, which later became part of my hit kit. I believe the alarm system had a PE beam in the hallway, so the skylight was the best way in. I removed the skylight, secured a rope to the base of metal on the roof, went down inside, and went to check the teacher's desk for the assignment. I found a girl's desk and rifled it. I don't believe I took anything, but I could have. I checked other desks, too, and scribbled a line with my left hand on the blackboard. I can't recall the message, but perchance it was the start of my cat and mouse game. I used the rope for support, pulled it out, replaced the skylight, took the rope back up, and left. It took an hour, maybe, a total of two hours at the most. No one found out it was me. It was a prank, but also my first project. As I grew bolder and more aggressive on the days when people were all gone from the house, I would carefully enter and go through the girls' feminine things, touching them. Somewhere from deep in a drawer, I would take an old pair of panties or nylons that wouldn't be missed. Later in a secret place, I would perform self-gratification with them. The dark side took hold one summer night, I guess bottled up in me for too long, At the 81 drive-in, they were running a controversial movie about a black man raping a white woman or having sex with her. The audience was asked to answer certain questions with a survey on the movie screen. I was too young to get in legally and would have been embarrassed to be seen there. So with the ruse of going fishing, I did an overnighter on the banks of the little Arkansas, just south of the bridge that crossed 53rd Street North. I set up my primary camp as dusk settled in, and then as it grew dark and the movie time started, I drove to the dike area along the Chisholm Creek east of the theater and west of Park City. I parked away from the main road and sneaked over to the 81. I climbed a tree and watched the movie. Sexually excited by it, I returned to the river, did bondage on myself with stakes, and half buried in the sand. Because I had parked along the road, a policeman stopped and checked the car. He shined a light toward me, and I quickly covered up with a blanket, and howled, I'm okay. He said he was just checking and left. That was a close call. West of the house was another sand pit, an old, run-down sand pit temple. Part of the structure had a sort of cage, a metal stream that faced the south. This is where I dreamed of bringing Annette cello. I had a big crush on her when she was on the Mickey Mouse Club, and I now had little time to watch the program. But she had grown up in front of me, and suddenly, like the girls of seventh and eighth grade, she was attractive, and sexual fantasies ran rapid in my mind. She became my slave girl in the chicken house, or the attic, and I focused on the bound mummy-type theme. Annette became imprisoned in the sand pit, and I would pretend I was her, and perform self-gratification acts in that cage with the sun bearing down on me, tightly bound at the mercy of the elements. Rader liked to envision Annette as a victim and himself in her victim role as well. He enjoyed the fusion of the two and immersing himself in both sides of the victim experience. He resented females who robbed him of power and he enjoyed experiencing both the feeling of power and powerlessness. Dennis Rader reflecting on his early life. There were times earlier in my life when someone should have said, this guy needs help. Dennis would continue to bind himself while indulging in fantasies about the sadistic torture of others. Rader decided he wanted to inform his victims that they were going to die. Their fear of death would enhance his enjoyment of the experience. As he put it, I believe the mental part played the biggest part in the development of my desire to torture. It was more a fiction and fantasy. Rader took to cross-dressing as well. He especially enjoyed undergarments made of silk, like his mother and grandmother wore. He wondered if there could be some kind of gender-based dichotomy at work in his psyche. Could I be two people in one body, male and female? He asked rhetorically. He kept his victim's underwear as souvenirs so that he could keep the experience alive to some degree. Because he was shy and awkward with women, he developed what he called death-to-pretty-girl fantasies. These involved illustrations that included torture devices. He would also make sure to draw an anguished expression on the victim's face. It was in 1966 when Rader began breaking in and entering houses in earnest. Perhaps there was a connection to this and the story of the Boston Strangler that emerged in the media at that time. It's no wonder Rader found this story so appealing. The victims would be left in sexual poses. In many cases, a stocking used as a ligature was tied in a bow. The final and most heinous of these killings happened to Mary Sullivan. The killer jammed part of a broomstick into her vagina and placed a New Year's greeting card against her foot. Two scarves were tied around her neck and tied into bows. Seamen dripped from her mouth. On November 5, 1964, Albert DeSalvo was arrested and he confessed to being the Boston Strangler. Just like how the Beatles were influenced by Elvis Presley and Chuck Berry, Dennis Rader idolized the Boston Strangler and sought to emulate him where possible. He bought a book on the case entitled The Boston Strangler in 1966 and read it. It became like a Bible to him. I loved this book. He was a real strangler. The Boston Strangler, one of my most followed and studied minotaurs. I read the book many times and watched the movie. He did a lot of prowling, trolling, used ruses to gain entry into their apartments, I even wore green pants and sweatshirt, like him, at my early murders. With strangling, there's something about being close to that person. Your hands, the power, and control. Can't recall his victim number, but it was close to my number. Females of all ages. I copied, reduced, and put the cover of that book on one of my 3 by 5 index cards. That year, Raider was drafted and opted to join the Air Force due to his desultory performance in college. More profound influences appeared that year that shaped him into BTK. He read about a man named Richard Speck, who murdered eight nurses in one night in Chicago. As Rader recalls, I read quite a bit about him. It was big news in 1966. His case, like the Clutter's, was about being grabbed in terror and held by madmen. madman. They were strangled, which excited me. Another murderer that commanded his unwavering attention was Charles Whitman. Whitman climbed up to the 28th floor of a clock tower at the University of Texas at Austin. It was up there where he killed 14 people and wounded 32 before he himself was killed. Later, it was discovered he had killed his wife and mother. It became clear to Rader that committing mass murder was a way to become somebody. Reinforcing this view, in late 1966, he learned of a teenager named Robert Smith, who used his rifle to kill women in a beauty parlor in Arizona. Smith stated afterwards that he wanted to become famous, like Richard Speck and Charles Whitman. Stationed in Okinawa, Raider would occasionally hire call girls. Some of them allowed him to tie them up. That cost extra. He lost his virginity overseas to a prostitute. It was overseas where he heard about the Manson murders. He was turned off by the murder of Sharon Tate, who was eight months pregnant at the time. Murdering a pregnant woman, paradoxically, was morally repugnant to Dennis Rader. Rader returned to Wichita in August of 1970. His mother decided it was time to introduce Rader to a woman, feeling it was the influence his rudderless life needed. She introduced him to a nice girl, Paula Dietz. He found her attractive, and he was no longer shy, so he asked her for a date, and she accepted. His father also approved of her. He dated her regularly, and everybody was happy with the arrangement. Having fallen in love, Raider's dark side receded into the shadows where it belonged. As he reflected, I was in love. You've heard the expression, love stick? That's how I felt. Once we had a church gathering one Sunday evening. Paula's folks showed up, but she didn't. Did she not like me? We'd had two or three dates. I became physically sick. I threw up outside. It hurt so bad. Later she said something had come up. I had never told her I became sick. I just said I'd missed her. They set a wedding date for May 22, 1971. In February of that year, Raider's dark side emerged once again, when Paula was injured in a car accident. She survived, but the trauma for him tapped into something deep and dark, something that starved for control amid the chaos that beset his life when he almost lost her. Raider had returned to college, but after the accident, his lone wolf tendencies resurfaced. As he recalled, I would eat alone read true crime and watch co-eds come and go. I also found a bookstore in El Dorado that I liked. I had a mini hit kit in my car, so I think deep down, trying to kidnap someone again was not long away. In the spring and summer, I drove around El Dorado, looking for old abandoned farm homesteads or areas to fish and explore. The crack widened. I found some old bridges, the ones with the wooden planks, and iron frames that I had once used for self-bondage. The key to this self-gratification was to be bound, hand and foot, with a rope tight in the groin area, gagged, a plastic bag over my head, a noose on the neck, and the sounds of an approaching vehicle as it hit the bridge's wooden planks. I would also find old barns with baling wire, or old binder twine, and with my bondage kit, I'd pretend to hang off the wooden beams. I'd find old houses, and after rummaging through them, I'd practice self-gratification in a closet with a noose on the door or clothes rack. The knife, guns, and hit kit were with me. So if an unlucky female had stopped, the murder spree would have started before 1974. Though raider was satisfied with his marital sex life, Paula wasn't as keen on bondage as he was. It was something many couples experimented with at the time, but she just didn't have his masochistic streak. Things were going well for him nevertheless. He got a job at Cessna after graduating and earned a good income. But that came to an end when he was laid off, and he turned irrevocably to the dark side. He summed it up as follows. When this monster enters my brain, I will never know, but it's here to stay society can be thankful that there are ways for people like me to relieve myself at times by daydreams of some victim being tortured and being mine in terms of what raider predicted he would feel in the aftermath of a murder he likely envisioned the best case scenario joy fulfillment satisfaction erotic release empowerment inner peace other serial killers have professed to feeling these things after committing murder. The after effects Rader felt were far more disappointing. To quote Rader, my brain was on fire. He wrote that in his journal after killing the Otero family, a feeling of pressure appeared in his head. He said it felt like he was being crushed in a vice. None of the murderers he read about and idolized reported these feelings. He was worried about discovery of the evidence and the arrest that was sure to follow, so he burned all items that had been used in connection with the Oteros, except for the Air Force parka he wore, that had sentimental value to him. There were blood spots on it, but he knew he could always tell someone that they were acquired from hunting. After a time, he realized the case had run cold, and he had no one to hide from. Though he disposed of any direct evidence from the crime scene, he did create an archive for the media focus the case attracted. He steered clear of Edgemoor, the district where the Ocheros lived, unless circumstances necessitated a brief drive-by. No matter how much anxiety he experienced, the monster woke from its slumber and its thirst for blood was renewed. I believed that by February or March, the hunt began again. I found it exciting to prowl at day or night. It was very easy to me to spend a little time after classes to prowl or day drive that area. Going to class worked well for me as a cover. I could say I was at the library and use the time to prowl and stalk. Nothing else in life that brought him pleasure compared to murder. He was hooked. He began to prowl in earnest looking for the perfect victim he broke it down thusly i had many what i would call projects or pjs there were different people in the town that i followed watched i carried a clip-on knife the folding buck hunter was my favorite it was fairly large and heavy but for any fishing trips or campouts it was with me in a leather case later i bought thinner defense knives like the escape black folding knife Both were lock blades. I also always carried a pocket knife, even on Sunday. I carried a thin one to church, which fit easily into my dress clothes. I had numerous places I liked to check, always on the lookout for a new potential hit as I traveled. One day he happened upon a woman that appealed to him as a potential victim. One day after classes or in between, I spotted Catherine Bright arriving home with a friend another female, maybe a sister. She was at her mailbox. She fit my fantasy profile. A co-ed, dishwater blonde, small. I saw her go in the house, and I thought, that's a possibility. After peeping into her windows, he learned that she appeared to live alone, with the possibility that the other woman might have been a roommate. She did not have a dog, which was a definite bonus for him. Her situation was ideal, and a rush of excitement washed over him. My heart raced as the hit came into focus. From that moment on, I locked in on that house. I would drive by to do a quick casing of the yard and layout of the neighborhood. The house was set off by itself. There was a two-story house to the east, a house behind and a laundromat to the west, with a busy street to the north. Catherine Bright's name was unknown to me until the news released, but she became a true detective horror magazine hit and fantasy. Her bedroom appeared to be in the center east. I was planning on tying her up on the bed, either half naked or totally. Then I would either strangle her or suffocate her. Her hands would be bound in front and tied to her neck. Like a true detective magazine model I had seen, I used to fantasize about women on the cover, showing terror in their eyes, bound hand up near their neck, a man with a threatening knife overhead. Raider did experience some second thoughts. After the Otero's carnages down deep, one part of me said, you really freaked out and crossed the dark path. Better just stop. Think of it as just a bad day and move on in life. But the other part of me overrode good sense. I thought I could control it. I soon realized I was in over my head, and I was too embarrassed to ask for help. I quickly was into sexual fantasies beyond my control. I had set my goals to be a white hat high, but the lifeboat drifted away from my reach until the deep water became my coping. I had trusted myself to steer the right course, but when I studied books about past serial killers, the more I learned, the closer I came to believe I could someday become one. I was on a powerful train and could not get off. The track was set. Superman could stop it, but I was not Superman. To cope with what I was doing, I cubed, like I would do as a kid. A normal person would go crazy from such evil intent. But serial killers are not normal. We have our own world we live in, just like a monster in his own castle. We may go out in the world and be friendly and nice, but were still held captive in the castle. Very hard for anyone to jump the moat and bring down the walls. The following is information gleaned from Wichita Police Department case number 05CR498. On April 4, 1974, officers responded to a call at 2317 East 13th Street, where one Catherine Bright was found lying in a pool of blood was still alive and suffering from excruciating pain. She showed the officers that she had been stabbed. She gave her name and age soon after she passed out. The officers reported that nylon stockings were observed as having been tied on her wrists and ankles. A blue scarf and thin cord had been tied around her neck. Her body was marked by bruises and numerous cuts that were still bleeding. She begged for help, stating that she was experiencing respiratory arrest. She was taken by ambulance for medical attention. After she was gone, two officers searched the house. The radio was left on. Catherine's purse had been emptied of its contents and dumped. A drawer containing women's underwear was left open. A telephone was disconnected from a wall. A pair of shirts that had been tied to a blood-soaked nightgown had been left on the floor near a closet. Two teeth had been left on the shirts. A red garment was tied to the bed. There was a bullet hole in the bathroom door. Fragments of a small-caliber bullet were found nearby. In the back bedroom, a chair that had been drenched in blood was observed. Nylon stockings were tied to it. The glass of the window on the back door had been broken. During a search of Catherine's father's truck outside, a plastic cord was found. It was Catherine's brother Kevin who called the authorities. After running from the scene, the intruder shot him twice and tied a white cord around his neck. He nearly died and was urgently in need of medical attention. Catherine was alive on arrival when she was brought to hospital, but died during surgery. She had been stabbed 11 times in her torso front and back there were further complications due to strangulation kevin's description of the events went as follows they entered the house and encountered a white male who was armed he told them he was a wanted fugitive from california he was described as white age was possibly 25 years old 5 foot 11 with a stocky build possibly 180 pounds he had dark hair and a mustache He wore gloves and was sweating profusely. At gunpoint, he forced Kevin to tie Catherine up. Afterwards, he asked for money. He put a stocking around Kevin's neck with intent to strangle. Kevin did not acquiesce. They struggled to obtain full possession of the gun. Kevin was shot, but remained conscious. He heard his sister cry out in pain. He tried to engage the intruder in combat again, but was shot once more. Deciding that their only chance of survival lie in appealing for assistance by first responders, he fled from the house. This incident wasn't satisfying for Rader either, since he came too close to getting caught. I had prepared my hit items in advance. I later called it Project Lights Out. The clothes and other items were in my car, ready to go. I went to class, but could not focus. After classes, I drove to the Kenmar Shopping Center behind the main grocery store and changed my clothes in the car. I actually wore the same Air Force issue parka to KB's place that I had worn at Otero's. I had bought the parka in Japan at a military sale. It was a big bulky green coat, but warm, and you could hide a lot of things under it. From Kenmar, I drove to just south of the WSU main campus, next to the park. From there, I walked to KB's place i had my 357 magnum colt woodsman two knives extra rounds the magazine and a shoulder holster the woodsman a 22 auto target pistol was not the best gun to use to confront with this was the same one i had used at otero's house it would be the last time as i accidentally shot off a round. later raider told police he had accidentally fired a shot because his gun had a hair trigger and had been afraid that Bright would smell the gunpowder. At one other place, P.J. Milo, during a BE, I accidentally shot a round off in the basement of that house. It had a target trigger, but I liked it for target practice. I felt comfortable with it and could hit whatever I shot at. I had my 357 Magnum as backup, in the left arm holster, but it was a loud gun. I also had leather gloves. I had started wearing golf gloves after I saw a movie with Jack Nicholson starring as a hitman. He wore skin-tight golf gloves. Thus, I got the idea. I stole them so there was no trace to me. I didn't shoplift for fun. I did it only if I needed an item. Since golf gloves come as singles, I stole two, and reversed one to fit the other hand, I believe, or I took both a right-handed glove and a left-handed glove. I wanted golfing-type gloves to better grasp and feel than the rubber gloves that had been so difficult before. Also, this time I had two stocking caps, a black ski mask and a gray cap with white snowflakes on it. The gray one was in my coat pocket. I also carried some books, which I could throw away if needed. My plan was to knock at the front door, pretend to be a WSU student doing homework and research, looking for a new tutor to help me. Is this the right address, I would ask? That was my ruse as I approached the door. Her car was there, a Ford, so I figured she was home, but she wasn't. I'm not sure if I cut the phone lines. She wasn't there, so there wasn't any need to. I walked to the southeast corner and saw a covered screened-in porch. I tried the screen door, and it was locked. I looked around for activity in the nearby house. I saw nothing, so I smashed the screen door with my fist. "'reached in, and unlocked the door. "'Next, the back door to the kitchen was locked. "'Hoping that no one would hear the sound, "'I broke it with something hard "'that I found in the porch area. "'I then crawled through the broken window. "'Once I cased the home, I realized "'that if she came home and first saw the broken glass "'as she entered, she would back out and leave. "'I swept it up into a corner by the door "'to hide it from view. "'I walked around the house and kind of figured out "'where I should be if she came through.' I imagined what I would do with her. I thought about how it was to strangle someone. I chose the bedroom. I considered having sex with her. I was still casing the home to figure out where to approach her, take her, when I heard car doors shut. Not one, but two. I looked out the window and caught a glimpse of the two coming up on the porch. One was male. I hadn't expected this. There was not much time to react, and certainly the male was a big problem. As they came through the front door, I approached them, gun in hand. Now as I think back, that was dumb. The door was still open, and they could have bolted out the door, taking their chances on being shot and escaped. It would have been smarter for me to wait until the door closed, but I had been startled. This was the second time I hadn't counted on an adult male being there and had to figure out fast how to deal with it. I guess they were related. You might wonder why I didn't approach them with the ski mask on, since I had one with me. The reason is that they weren't going to live, so why put it on? I figured that if I had a mask on, it would make the situation more tense. I also did not bring my usual hit kit. I approached them and told them I was wanted in California. I needed a car. It was basically the same story I told the Oteros. I wanted to ease them to make them feel better before I proceeded. I wanted them to think that I was just a robber, not there to do them harm. I had found items throughout the house to tie the female up or strangle or suffocate. Nylon stockings, a blue scarf fur gag. The thin cords were different from what I had used at the Oteros. I believe white plastic clothesline cord, thin, but strong. One could buy it at any grocery store or hardware store. If I recall, it had a wire center and it was hard to cut with a knife. I forced them into the northeast bedroom and used what I found there to tie them. I made Kevin tie Catherine's hands and let her sit on the bed while I tied him. If I had brought and used my stuff, Kevin would probably be dead today. The bonds I tied him with, he broke them and maybe the same way with Catherine. It got out of hand. I didn't bring mine because I wanted the ruse to work. If I had had my hit kit, they would have been alerted. I tied Kevin's feet to a bedpost so he couldn't run. When he was secure, I moved Catherine to another bedroom and tied her to a chair. I think I gagged her, too. When I thought she'd stayed put, I came back to strangle him. I could have shot him, but I didn't want her to hear. I had turned on the radio loud to drown out the sound of me strangling Kevin while Catherine was in the other room. With him out of the way, I could handle her as I pleased, or that was my theory. And at that time we had a fight. I had two handguns. I had started to strangle him and he had broke his bonds and jumped up real quick. Like I pulled my gun and quickly shot him and hit him in the head. He fell over. I could see the blood. And as far as I was concerned, you know, I thought he was down and was out. I went and started to strangle Catherine. We started fighting because her bonds weren't very good. And so back and forth we fought. I got the best of her, and I thought she was going down, and then I could hear movement in the other room. So I went back to the other bedroom where Kevin was at, and I tried to re-strangle him. He jumped up, and we fought, and he got the other pistol, my Magnum, that was in my shoulder holster. We fought over it, and I thought it was going to go off. I stuck my finger in there and jammed it. I think he thought that was the only gun I had because I either bit his finger or hit him or something. I got away and used the .22 and shot him one more time. I tried a quick John Wayne Western shot. I didn't aim. I just grabbed it out of my pocket and fired towards his head. He immediately fell down. I believe I kicked him or tried to see if he was dead. I didn't check for life signs. I had hit him in the mouth, apparently knocking out his teeth. There was just a lot of blood, and I thought he was down for good that time. Why I didn't shoot him in the head, I don't know. Possibly because of all the noise and confusion, and KD's hearing it. If I had shot him, things would have turned out differently. After Kevin, I sort of lost control and composure. If I had shot him, things would have turned out differently. Katie was tied to the chair in the bedroom and she was beginning to get hysterical. Her gag had slipped out and I didn't realize she was also less restrained in the chair. As I returned to her, she asked, what's going on? I told her I had shot her brother, but he would be okay. Then we began to fight. I tried to strangle her, but that didn't work. Losing control and with the problematic Kevin, I recalled what I had read somewhere about how to stab a person. That's not what I wanted to do, but I had lost control and needed to end this. If I had known Kevin was still alive, perhaps I would have just left or maybe shot her, but I quickly unholstered my hunting knife, a buck knife with an 8-inch blade, and began stabbing her. I'd had no intention of stabbing anyone, but it happened because I lost control. That created a mess of blood everywhere, on my hands, pants, shoes, I made a vow, if I ever again had to confront to kill, there would be no knife. I would only draw it if I needed to defend myself. I thought I had just stabbed two or three times underneath the ribs. I had read in a detective magazine that if you want them to go down, you stab under the ribs and hit the lungs or heart. It was a total mess because I didn't have control over it, and she was bleeding bad. Then I heard Kevin escape. All of a sudden, the front door of the house was open and he was gone. I thought the police were coming. I thought, this is it. I'm caught. I could see him running down the street. So I quickly cleaned up everything and left. Catherine was still moaning and I wondered if I should shoot her. But I made fast tracks out of there. Since Kevin could ID me, it wouldn't make any difference if she was dead. If I recall, I also took Catherine's driver's license. This and others became prized trophies for my hidey holes. I already had the keys to the cars, and I thought I had the right key to the right car. I ran out to their car, and I think it was the pickup out there, and I tried it, but it didn't work. And at that point in time, Kevin was gone. He had left the door open. I was in trouble. I had gone off through the back door, cutting my pants and leg on a broken glass. I lost my gray stocking hat. I ran east and then worked back north along Holyoke toward the WSU campus where my car was parked. I was afraid the police would catch or stop me on Holyoke. I recall that I ran so hard and fast my lungs hurt for a day or two afterward from breathing the cold air. From WSU, I drove home before my wife got home cleaned up, and placed my blood-stained clothes in plastic bags. I got blood on my hush puppies. I moved these items to my folks' house, hiding them in their garage. I put my guns in a sawdust box and other items in the garage attic or the old chicken house. My parents were both at work, so I had time to look for good spots. Later on, after a few days, I retrieved and burned the shoes, pants, and gloves. I moved the guns to a better hiding spot at their home. In this interim, like after the Oteros, I destroyed a lot of magazines from my hidey-hole stash and rid the house of all bondage paraphernalia. I also moved my Otero hidey-hole items to my folks' home. My trophy items were now in a green tackle box with a good lock. I often used my folks' place to hide items and also do big-time bondage when they were gone on vacations. Their place, my second hidey hole place, and fantasy workshop in the basement, where I did bondage as a teenager. This incident received significant news coverage. When I saw the news releases about Bright, I knew that Kevin was now a survivor and able to tell. Catherine had died. Kevin had described me as sweating, and yes, I really sweated a lot. The heavy parka didn't help, plus I had the windbreaker on and a sweatshirt, plus I wore the black cap. Even today under stress, I sweat. Yet as the years moved along and I got better, I think I did sweat less. With some, I remember being pretty cool and in control completely. I was worried about Kevin. He was Catherine's brother, I learned. I did some checking and found out where the Brights lived in Valley Center. I thought of maybe trying to hit on Kevin at some point. I never could come up with a perfect plan. The months and years slipped away, and I was pretty sure I wasn't going to be caught for a lineup. If so, Kevin's memory might not be that good. He did give the police a fairly good description of me, and I thought the picture in the newspaper was uncomfortably close to me, but no one ever came for me. Detectives contemplated a possible connection between the murders of the Oteros and the Brights, but the scant evidence collected didn't connect them. Contemplating the possible motive, they assumed it was completely different. Also, the murderer of the Oteros supplied his own rope. The Brights were attacked with items obtained from their home, except for the gun. The assailant at the Brights was already in the house waiting for them. He didn't cut the phone line. Catherine was stabbed instead of strangled. He shot Kevin. None of the Oteros were shot or stabbed. The male Oteros were suffocated with bags. At the time, serial killers were known for trademarks and specialized killing techniques. There were always patterns. The Bright and Otero cases defied this logic. Even the knots that were tied were different at each scene. Granny knots versus clove hitches. The Otero murders seemed to be motivated by sexual pathology. The Bright incident seemed to be more like a burglary gone wrong. Rader later wrote a description of the Bright incident in his journal. That murder was a train wreck, and he was deeply disappointed. No matter how organized and cautious he was, factors emerged out of chance, and those he could not plan for. As he reflected, Later as I gathered the news clippings on King I taped a picture from a detective magazine to one of my hidey-hole folders, the one that showed the girl tied with her hands in front the way I had wanted to do with KB. I kept KB's clipping inside, and even wrote a story, I believe, possibility of a fantasy of her. I placed a piece of tape over the mouth on the model's picture as a gag. This added a sexual dimension to the folder. I recall reading in the Boston Strangler that one time he had spread Eagle the victim on her bed. These fantasy thoughts played out with KB. Raider was not apprehended and life went on. In the summer, Raider was still unemployed. He made plans for more murder projects and broke into a few houses. Some people had close calls, some knew, some didn't. Three men of questionable sanity and a history of sexual crimes insinuated that they had inside information about the Otero murders. One of them was featured in the news. It irked Rader that credit was given to that man. But, of course, he couldn't reveal anything about himself without getting caught. Nevertheless, he felt that credit was due to the real killer and should be paid forward. How would he set things right? He came up with an idea, a risky idea. On October 22, 1974, Rader called a columnist for the Wichita Eagle by the name of Don Granger. Adopting a gruff voice with a thick Midwestern accent, he told Granger to go to the public library and open a book entitled, Applied Engineering Mechanics. There he would find a letter containing graphic details of the Otero murders. This would provide evidence that the men interviewed by police were not culpable. Granger contacted the police and notified them about the location of the letter. The following is an exact transcription of the letter. Those three dudes you have in custody are just talking to get publicity. They know nothing at all. I did it by myself and with no one's help. Raider describes the Otero crime scene in detail, with body positions and conditions. I'm sorry this happens to the society. It's hard to control myself. You probably call me psychotic with sexual perversion hang up. Where this monster enters my brain, I will never know. But it's here to stay how does one cure himself if you ask for help that you have killed four people they will laugh or hit the panic button and call the cops i can't stop it so the monster goes on and hurts me as well as society society can be thankful that there are ways for me to relieve myself at times by daydreams of some victim being tortured and being mine it's a big complicated game my friend of the monster play, putting victims' numbers down, following them, checking up on them, waiting in the dark, waiting, waiting. The pressure is great, and sometimes he runs the game to his liking. Maybe you can stop him. I can't. He has already chosen his next victim or victims. I don't know who they are yet. The next day after I read the paper, I will know. But it is too late good luck hunting yours truly guiltily p.s since sex criminals do not change their mo or by nature cannot do so i will not change mine the code words for me will be bind them torture them kill them b t k you see he's at it again They will be on the next victim. Though Rader had not officially adopted BTK as his moniker, he also knew that at this point he had gone past the point of no return. The monster within him had awakened, and any control he held over him was beyond his reach. He was the monster. He reflected on this turn of events. By using BTK, torture, fantasy writing, drawing, and what I had planned to do, I wrote my own criminal epithet if caught those words would hang me it was a moniker he felt would convey power and provoke terror still he wasn't a hundred percent certain of just how evil he was many people think that i actually tortured people victims that is not true although being tied up as a form of torture but it's not the same the strangulation came quick once I decided to put this person down. The plastic bags helped reduce the hand strength needed to strangle. A person doesn't die like on TV or in the movies. It takes a long time, and they struggle hard. I recall my hands hurt and ached from the Oteros. I had plastic bags to keep items in once I had tried to strangle Mr. Otero, and he came back. I thought of the bags. There was a sex thriller book I read once. The book's pervert had used large plastic bags on victims, or large garment bags to suffocate victims. I even had to strangle Mrs. Otero twice. I used my clove hitch the second time, a knot I liked. Thus the old bag trick. Joseph got it without being strangled. My hands were completely tired and ached. I believe my rubber kitchen gloves didn't help. With the murders left unsolved the people of wichita felt uneasy so much so that many decided to have burglar alarms installed in their homes after all both incidents began with break-ins with so much demand for the alarms popular provider adt scrambled to fill installer positions raider leapt at the opportunity in other words People would have a burglar alarm installed to protect themselves from BTK, unaware that the man was standing there in their living room installing it himself. Raider couldn't have been more thrilled. I started work at ADT Security late in 1974. So I went to school during the evening. I installed security systems in homes and businesses. Paula worked at the VA. We were active in the church as youth leaders. But I now had jobs out of town and opportunities to prowl in other places. He was even more excited when he discovered an ad directed at BTK in the Wichita Eagles Personals section. Help is available at Red. It included a phone number. He loved that he was being taken so seriously. He assumed that police were monitoring all incoming calls to that number, so he didn't call it. Amid all his activity as a serial killer, Rader's alter ego as a churchgoer and doting husband was dedicated and committed to preserving what normalcy remained in his life. Well, almost. I acted normally when Paula was present at home. I watched the news with interest, but not overly. I read the paper, but did not cut out the articles until later. We kept a stack of discarded newspapers at home. And little by little, I cut them, the articles, out and hid them. I also became overly defensive. I watched the road outside and had a loaded gun ready. I made sure our locked windows were secure, probably like everyone else in Wichita. I kept a gun in the car. Paula found my 25 auto once under the seat of our car on vacation. She was upset. I told her, you never know on the road what could happen. She asked me not to do that again. I hid it in the back of the vehicles real good. She didn't like guns in the home, but I told her that all were unloaded and the shells put away. I lied, for the 25 auto was always ready to shoot, and many times the 357 mag loaded and ready as well. They were well hidden in places I could quickly gain access to. In my classes, I was nervous about police in the classroom. They were looking for me, but I was one among thousands of students. I did not stand out. I did not lose sleep over a hit. I did not act differently. They could not pick me out. At one point, we had a guest teacher, Dr. William Eckert, a forensic pathologist, who did the autopsies. Right there in front of him was the man that killed his autopsy victims. If he had only known, that was a powerful play on my part. The feeling of secret cloak and dagger. I liked the feeling. He was asked once about how he liked living a double life, or cubing, as he put it. He described it in these terms I named it a hit, like the Mafia. They, as well as other murderers, must have a built in cubing mind for us to survive. The term cold blooded, it is in some aspects, but we also have feelings like normal people. I will say that if I didn't sleep well for a few nights, the details of the murder before and after were like counting sheep. Sleep would soon follow. Another aspect of cubing was where to hide the mother load as the years went by. After the Oteros, it started to build slowly. Back then, I was into detective magazines and their covers with BD stories. On paperback books, I would photocopy the cover, scale to 3x5, size to place on an index card and place them in my hidey holes. I sometimes photocopied a sexual page or two. I watched TV movies like the Boston Strangler, the one with Tony Curtis I liked the best. I used the WSU library, a treasure chest of news, books, and data. For example, BH 1, 2, 3, and 4, the Oteros, found everything written down or in print on them at WSU, even when they were mentioned in the New York Times. After a hit, I would store them at my folks' home, church, some shed. Later, I moved the mother load to an abandoned farm machine north of Park City in a field. Once I had a secret place in the crawl space under the house, and I had a couple spots in the attached shed. Even a bank safe deposit box was used. Another cubing was the time period between murders. Otero and Bright were in 1974, almost like a critter of the deep woods or a werewolf. The kill satisfied, and there was no need to hurry. And the next strong fantasy would start from what the troller or stalker sees. I watched and did some B.E., but did not strike. The last part, and most dangerous, is how we can blend into society with no apparent outstanding characteristics that is what makes a serial killer so dangerous and hard to detect cubing they become master of this not to brag it has to be a true fact like the wolf in sheep's clothing a powerful deadly figure among the sheep able to work be a husband father lover almost a bad Robin Hood or Zorro white hat becomes black hat For some unknown reasons of a common man, the miniature has to do foul deeds to feel special. I had thought about suicide, but the never-ending power of BD and SM won over. What people don't realize is that this is a fantasy world. Collecting or doing these drawings is not good. Society is really down on them, so it's secret. My feeling is that they, the victims, were objects, part of the fantasy. They had a role. With the Oteros, it was the murder of a family. And yes, sexually exciting. I came to a climax that day. Rader intimated that there were occasions, even in the middle of a hit, when he would ask himself, My God, what are you doing? He would push these considerations aside with haste. Such doubts were always short-lived. His life with Paula went on. After difficulties with infertility, they had two children and were both thrilled to start their family. Meanwhile, BTK had still not been identified. Raiders stayed one step ahead of the law. He wasn't done killing, however. Wichita Police Department case number 5 cr 498 On March 17, 1977, Police were dispatched to 1311 South Hydraulic Street. A neighbor, who had been informed by some young boys who came across as very disturbed, had observed a woman in the house with a bag over her head. She was animate from outward appearances and could have very well been dead. The body had been stripped naked. It was lying face down on the bed. Her feet pointed toward the bed's headboard. The bed had been pushed against the bathroom door. The plastic bag on her head was fastened to it with a pink nightgown. Black electrical tape had been wrapped around her arms and ankles. Her hands were bound behind her back with a white cord. Another white cord had been wrapped around her neck four times. The same cord ran down her body and was encircled with a cord that bound her wrists and ankles. The victim's name was Shirley Vian. Her sons, aged six and eight, witnessed the murder from within a locked bathroom. It was they who notified the neighbor. They described the perpetrator as being a Caucasian male with a gun and a small zippered suitcase. He forced them and their younger sister to go into the bathroom and stay there. From there, he tied up their mother. He also tied the children into the bathroom. The six-year-old's name was Steve. He had seen the assailant earlier in the day on the street. He knocked at a door and displayed a photo of a woman and child. The man showed it to the resident who answered the door and asked if he knew them. The man said he did not. The children escaped from the bathroom when the eldest of the three broke a window. Dennis Rader's recollection of the incident. Surely Bayan had not been his first choice that day. She was completely random. There was actually someone across from Dylan's who might have been the potential target. Or maybe I'm confusing this with my fantasies about this girl. It was called Project Green or Greenwood. I had met this girl, Cheryl, I think, at WSU, and I knew where she lived and she had an address with a 12. I had another PJ on self-hydraulic. On that particular day, I drove to Dylan's and parked in the parking lot and watched this particular residence, and then got out of the car and walked over to the door. I knocked, but nobody answered. I have said in other accounts that I had another one, Project Blackout, from the name of a bar where I had seen a woman I had thought about, but I was blowing smoke. That was not a real project. I was all keyed up over not getting into that house from PJ Green, so I drove and then parked and started going through the neighborhood. I had on my James Bond jacket, a tweed jacket, and nice shoes. I had enough projects I'd been watching that if one didn't work out, I could just go to another. I had been in the back alleys and knew where certain people lived. That area was good for PJs because it was easy to get in and out, and there was cover for me. There were other places I had watched, but I only wrote the key places down. It was easy for me to park at this Dillon's and watch for projects, and to get in and out without being blocked. I also used Dillon's coffee machine quite often, and pretended to shop there so I could follow people out and home. I also would buy true crime magazines at this Dillon's. The nearby interstate was a perfect road to get me from home to different areas. It was only a 9 to 10 minute drive. There were parks nearby to eat at while I watched. I had been to these parks as a child, or on grade school field trips. It had lots of older homes, 1920 to 1940, with alleys to walk or drive. Lots of trees and places I could hide in. It was a cheaper area of town, so folks probably had a little looser lifestyle. There were big porches to walk up on, sort of hidden from the traffic or neighbor's eyes. All in all, it was the perfect place to prowl and troll. Also, for strange reasons, I favored the hydraulic street areas. One humorous note: after walking the area north of his area by Sears, I had stopped and bought a loaf of bread to pretend I was shopping and walking home. It was in a paper sack. After my walk, I needed to head back to my car in the shopping center. I dropped the bag with the bread in the mailbox. I wonder what the mailman thought when he opened the box. But while I was walking away from the intended house and down hydraulic, I saw a young boy coming down from Dylan's. I figured he had a mother in the house. I had a picture in my wallet of my wife and baby. So I used it to pretend I was looking for them. I asked if he had seen them. I knew he wouldn't know them. He told me he didn't, but I watched where he went. Now I wish I hadn't used the family picture. What will they think? if they read about it or hear about it? Then I went to the door and knocked. This boy opened the door with his brother. I told him I was a private detective and showed them the picture. I carried a blue briefcase, large enough for my hit kit, cord, tape, plastic bags, a gun, but not too large to be noticed when I carried it on the street, like I was a salesman or businessman. I believe I threw it away later but I used it with other PJs to carry items for potential hits. I passed as a school detective looking for the lady and her son. I had a school ID made up. Once while looking for a job, I had filled out papers at number 259 School District Employment Office and picked up a business card. I had taken a Polaroid picture of myself, so I had added that to the ID card. Film was expensive, so I shoplifted it from Dylan's. I had my 357 Magnum, so I forced myself in and pulled the pistol. Mrs. Vyan came out to see what was wrong. She was wearing a robe and nightgown. I thought she was sick. I told her I had a problem with sexual fantasies, and I was going to tie her up. I pulled down the blinds and turned on the TV. I said that I would tie up the kids first. They would be okay if she would cooperate with me. She was extremely nervous. I think she even smoked a cigarette. We went back to one of the back areas of the porch. She was upset. I explained that I had done this before. I tried to tie one of the kids, but he started to cry. The kids got real upset. I said, this is not going to work. I was frustrated. I decided to put the kids in the bathroom and shut the door. We put toys and blankets in there for them. Mrs. Vyan helped me. She told the kids to do whatever I said. I tied the door shut, but the kids were still yelling. She helped me to shove a bed against the door, and I proceeded to tie her up. Into bondage, I had mental fantasies and many drawings of a nude woman on a bed. The bed frame, Victorian style, iron rot, plenty of places to tie a person to. When I see such a bed, I get sort of sexually excited. Both of my grandparents had such beds. Could it be an early piece of sexual feeling to sleep in a bed of this type? I recall at a very early age in my grandparents' bed, I believe the cook side, a cold night or nap time, beside my grandma or mom, a satin ribbon in her hair. I loved the feel of satin, rubbing it, perhaps the feel of female, satin, the iron bed. It was much early to think sex, Yet, why do I remember it so strong? The main thing is the binding as I tied Shirley up. Those were important. If a phone call hadn't stopped me, I probably would have taken pictures of her and either there or viewing the pictures had self-gratification. But I don't think I had a Polaroid camera yet. At that point, she vomited. I think my being there had made her worse. She was partially tied when I got her a glass of water and comforted her a little bit. This compassion runs in most of my crimes. And I see that in in cold blood as Smith, I believe, reties Mr. Clutter, asking him if he is cold and then later on kills him without mercy in the Otero's house. I laid a coat or parka down for Mr. Otero because he had been in a car accident and his ribs were still sore. I originally had taped or tied all of them up, and when they complained about it being too tight, I retied them. When I had placed the bag over Junior's head, Mrs. Otero was completely upset, more for him than her husband, so I removed it to think things over. With Shirley him? I placed the kids in the bathroom with blankets, toys, and books to try to comfort them. Now, why would I be so nice and then turn to murder? I guess I used that victim's comfort zone to gain control and trust and above all else, their ease. I went ahead and taped their hands behind their backs. Arms crisscrossed and taped is very exciting to me. I tied her legs to the bedpost and worked the rope all the way up. What I had left over, I looped around her neck. I put a bag over her head and strangled her. I used white plastic bags, garbage size, that you could buy in a roll. I liked the ones in a box. Using plastic gloves, I folded them neatly and placed them in another bag. That bag would go with me in case it had fingerprints or material on it. At times in self bondage, I used that type of bag over my own head to simulate suffocation. In ways, My bondage related to victims, or I replaced them in my bondage ordeals. I believe I used the same type of bag with the Oteros. I wonder if the police ever made that connection. If I had tape on me or had a victim bound with it, it was extremely sexually exciting. Black tape was the best. It was easy to unwrap. And quick. I had made a pre-loop so it would be easier to start the wrap with gloves on. I think I had switched to latex gloves by then. I had used rubber dishwashing gloves at Orteros and golf gloves at Bright's, but the double layer latex worked the best. In my hit kit, I always carried a roll of black electrical tape with me. I also used the tape to do self-bondage or used colored tape. Later, I favored duct tape for bondage. The white cord was one I favored. Parachute cord was small, flexible, extremely strong and deadly if wrapped around the neck the kids were banging on the door and yelling at me to leave their mother alone i told them i would shoot them then the telephone rang it startled me they had mentioned that a neighbor was going to be coming to check on them i had thought about doing to them what i had done at the oteros and hanging the little girl but i figured i didn't have much time i threw whatever was lying around rope tape into my briefcase and left. The messy side of a crime is Murphy's Law, or things you just don't know about and can't predict. The time frame was always an issue. Some had boyfriends or husbands that might drop by, or people supposedly coming over. I didn't expect Bright's brother to be there, or Mr. Otero. Having to deal with four for my first one was messy. In one PJ, the weather completely messed me up. I couldn't get the pictures I wanted and couldn't find the bar and I wanted to do my thing with her. The story of the murder received media attention. The children were interviewed, but the information they gave was not helpful enough to the police. So Rader was free to kill again. He nearly got caught, however, and it was an important lesson to be learned. Normally, he planned his murders with intricate detail over a period of days or weeks. He hadn't invested the time it would take to study Shirley Vianne and her habits. He didn't even know about the children. Because of this, he was not as empowered as he assumed he would be. He wanted to be a polished, seasoned killer, an efficient murder machine. With Shirley Viann's, he had been impulsive and sloppy. When he got home, he burned the clothes he had been wearing and wrote about the experience in his journal. He vowed to himself that the next time he would handle the killing with much more forethought. He wanted to commit a murder he could take pride in. He did manage to grab a trophy, Shirley Vian's panties. Rader explained his motive for doing this. Part of my M.O. was to find and keep the victim's underwear. I hid it at home. Then, in my fantasy, I would relive the day or start a new fantasy. I would don the victim's underwear, slips, panties, hosiery, sexy housecoats. I would wear a wig and sometimes a mask and put myself into bondage, as if I was the victim, and finally do self-gratification. Due to the amount and bulk of these items, I kept them in my closet in a locked suitcase or in boxes in the shed in clear plastic bags. After getting caught, Rader was asked by police why so much time passed between the murders of Kathy Bright and Shirley Byron. The officers assumed that serial killers were always compulsive and offended at length with few interruptions. Rader responded that though he had not murdered during specific periods, he was always prowling and stalking, looking for the perfect victim. They thought it was strange that there would be a cluster of five killings and then none for three years. Rader explained, I think it can be that a man goes fishing, and sometimes he's not very lucky. It may be some social issues. He's busy at home or work. I did not fit the normal profile of a serial killer. Why were there gaps of so many years? Bottom line, I was always on the prowl, much like hunting or fishing rituals. You're planning, checking gear. Perhaps reading or studying books or magazines. For the hunter, it may be a new gun or sporting gear to help him bag the big one. For the fisherman, a new rod, real, special lures, and that secret fishing hole to locate. In a way, this fills the gap for the day in the field. The hunter might target practice. The fisherman might practice casting in the backyard, throwing a practice lure into the kids' waiting pool. In both scenarios, the person has to have the time and proper season. It may take months or even years to plan a successful day. If you go to a hunter's den, you might find a trophy. But what about those off years? Yes, he may have been in the field with only minor kills or fish catches and minor stories to recall or brag about. But they will always remember and have memorabilia for the big day. Rader wrote a poem for Shirley Vian that went as follows. Shirley Locks, Shirley Locks, Wilt thou be mine? Thou shalt not scream, Not yet feel the line, But lay on a cushion, And think of me and death, And how it is going to be. Next was a project with three names, P.J. Fox, Fox Tail, And Fox Hunt. Fox was the code word for the next female victim he targeted. He was determined that this murder would not become a train wreck like that of Shirley Bayan. P.J. Fox Hunt was one of the few that went the way I wanted it. I was in complete control. I really thought this one through. Nancy Fox appealed to me as a sexual female victim, like Bright. So I probably had an attachment with her probably more than I did on some others. He zeroed in on several factors that made this the perfect hit. No boyfriend coming and going. No unexpected visitors. She didn't have a dog. He watched her for a long time to learn the details of this life that he would terminate. He even went through her mail. He found out where she worked. A jewelry store. He stopped by to get a closer look at her. He was better equipped for this one. He bought a glass cutter and practice with it to ensure he could cut glass without making noise. This would make it easier for him to unlock a door instead of making noise in the process of breaking in. He memorized her routines so that he knew when she would be home. As he did with all his murders, he went to the back of the house and cut the phone line. He cut the window, entered, and waited in the kitchen for her to return home. He recalled what happened when she finally turned up. She came in. She was startled. She asked what I was doing there. After we confronted each other, I told her I traveled a lot. I meant no real harm. I had a sexual problem. I wanted sex. I would tie her up and take a picture. She took her parka off. I believed it was white or cream colored. As she lay her parka down and began to smoke, I sat on the couch and she sat in a chair west side of living room. She was upset. We talked for a while. I went through her purse, identifying some stuff I'd want to take. And she finally said, well, let's get this over with so I can go call the police. She sealed her doom for sure when she told me she would contact the police. I wore no mask or anything to hide my face. I had to kill her. Can I go to the bathroom, she asked me. I said yes. She went to the bathroom. I put something in place to block her from closing and locking it, and kept an eye on the door while undressing. I told her when she came out to make sure that she was undressed. She left her sweater on. I started to remove it. She asked me not to, so I didn't. For some reason she asked that I leave the bedroom door open, which I did. This relates to other times when I respected a victim's request. I handcuffed her, hands behind her back, I had her lay on the bed, and then I tied her feet and gagged her. I asked if she had ever had sex in the butt with her boyfriend. I had no intention of normal rape sex or even sodomy. I wore no condom at that time, so actually, to me, it was mental rape or sodomy. That's all I needed with the victim in bondage. The act of strangling brought gratification quickly, along with the victim struggling. I got on top of her and then I reached over took a belt, mine or hers, and then strangled her with it. Though he has given varied accounts of what happened next, this is the story he gave both to police and to the editor of the source material for this episode. Fox passed out. I had her come back, and I whispered in her ear a little bit. I told her I was BTK. I was a bad guy. This was the torture thing. You can visualize being tied up and knowing that something is going to happen to you And you can do nothing. That's my torture. Fox tried to fight back, but Raider overcame her. She grabbed him in the crotch and squeezed very hard, hoping that this would force him to loosen his grip. But it actually made it more excited, he said. I took the belt off and retied that with pantyhose real tight, removed the handcuffs, and tied her hands with pantyhose. I think I might have tied her feet. at that time, I masturbated into her blue nightgown. It must have been like with Josephine Otero. I was too sexually excited to hold. Blue, one of my favorite colors, matched with a blue nightgown. As she was dying on the bed, I rifled through her drawers and her purse. I dressed and then went through the house, took some of her personal items. I kept some of her nice feminine clothes and jewelry. For some reason, jewelry attracted my attention. They were personal tokens, some things of value to that person. Maybe it was my Viking gene, where I was just a common thief. In most other places, I had been in a hurry, but I did have some time there. At times, I pawned these items, but usually not in Wichita, for I figured the police might have jewelry ID'd out at local pawn shops. Her driver's license became part of my memorabilia, to be kept in my most secret hidey hole. These are my trademarks and a must for the perfect victim bondage related matters. Personal clothes add sexual excitement, especially if feminine clothes. Rader thought about giving a piece of Fox's jewelry to his wife. I thought, no, I'm not going to give it to my wife. That's too cruel. I thought about giving it to my daughter once, and I maybe did give it to my daughter, but I don't think so. I think I still have it. He did take some lingerie. I did some sexual things to those later. He said that Nancy Fox was a nice family girl. Leave it to a weird guy like me to do that. I cleaned the house up of any trace of me, checked everything, had a drink of water, turned up the heat, and left. I put these items in a pillowcase, along with her purse items. As I left by the front door, I placed them in a nearby bush. As I walked back to my car, I would have nothing in my hands, or just that sack of bread bought at Dylan's, in case the police stopped me. As I left the area, I would go back and grab the pillowcase. I called Paula from a pay phone to tell her I had car trouble and would be late. The items I took I kept in the outdoor attached shed behind a false wall. Later, I buried them under the house in a special container. Pantyhose of all colors I could use for tying bondage, a face mask, strangling, and self-gratification. Rader was so eager to see a reaction to his handiwork that he decided to take the risk of catalyzing the investigation himself. He called the police, and a recording was made of the statement he gave. He recounts the experience as follows. Our crew often stopped at a cafe next to Oregon's Market at Central and St. Francis. The payphone was nearby. Being on a high, I made the call, but it was dumb, for I was in my company's truck. Later, the police played back my voice on TV news. I often wondered if someone who knew me would figure it out. I sweated BB every time they played it. I did cover and hold the phone with a handkerchief. That must have saved me voice-wise and was probably the reason the dispatcher asked me to repeat the address. Why I let the phone off the receiver, I don't know. Perhaps nervous or delay, but it could be traced. Maybe it was a cat and mouse move. Probably a thing you do when you're younger. And if you think things out, you wouldn't do it. I once called police station from my home when I was drunk, but it wasn't taken seriously. Raider did this because he was impatient for the media coverage to begin. Having seen the notoriety of other serial killers, Once their crimes made the news, he was determined to establish his own infamy. As he said, I get quite a bit of excitement reading stuff about what I did in the paper. You sit there and they talk about you on TV. That's pretty high type stuff. I was the team leader, the lead man, working at a building in North Waco. That morning, after getting my crew line out, I headed back to the shop to pick up supplies or check on my next job. I drove to that one in the evening, listening to news on the homicide. Wichita Police Department, case number 05-CR-498. On December 7, 1977, a call made from a pay phone on Central and St. Francis was received by a police dispatcher just after 8.15 a.m. The caller's words, Yes, you will find a homicide at 843 South Pershing. Nancy Fox. The dispatcher noted that the caller was male. When officers investigated the site of the phone, they reported that it was off the hook and dangling. The front door to Miss Fox's duplex was locked, but a cut phone line and damaged back window suggested evidence of a burglary. Located in the bedroom was the body of a 25-year-old woman who was identified as Nancy Fox. She lay face down on the bed and her ankles were bound with a yellow piece of clothing. Her hands were bound behind her back with a red piece of clothing. The house was neat and clean for the most part, though an extinguished cigarette had been stubbed out in an ashtray and her purse had been emptied out on a table. The heat had been turned up so high as to cause discomfort. The telephone receiver lay on the floor. Jewelry boxes had been rifled through and a pair of pantyhose had been left on the bedroom floor. Police noted that there were pry marks on the window lock. A pink sweater had been laid on Fox's body. Her panties had been pulled down. Two pairs of pantyhose had been wrapped around her neck. A blue nightgown was found near her head, and it was marked by semen stains. The cause of death appeared to be strangulation. While Christmas of 1977 was a somber one for the family of Shirley Byan, it was as pleasant as could be for Dennis Rader. He was off school and work and involved in church activities. He contributed more material to his poem on Shirley Vian, which he titled Shirley Loft. His wife nearly saw him write it one night while he was in the living room. When asked why it was about Shirley Vian, he told her his class was doing an assignment about BTK. When Rader finished the poem after several drafts, he wrote it on a 3x5 index card, including the initials BTK, and mailed it to the Wichita Eagle on January 31, 1978. He felt good about having carried out seven hits successfully. He had made mistakes, but he still eluded police. Despite the inclusion of the poem, there was no further BTK media coverage. This didn't sit well with him at all. He wrote another letter, This one was two pages. He included another poem and a drawing of a woman lying face down, bound, and gagged. Just like how Nancy Fox was found, besides the BTK initials, he drew a series of nooses. He sent the letter to a local television station, K-A-K-E-T-V. It was first opened by a receptionist on February 10th. In the letter, BTK claimed the responsibility for the murders of the Oteros, Shirley Vianne, Nancy Fox and a victim whose identity was not included he included a poem called Oh Death to Nancy which was a parody of a folk song called Oh Death Oh Death to Nancy went as follows Oh Death to Nancy What is this that I can see? Cold icy hands taking hold of me For death has come You all can see Hell has opened its gate to trick me Oh, death, oh, death, can't you spare me over for another year? I'll stuff your jaws till you can't talk. I'll bind your legs till you can't walk. I'll tie your hands till you can't make a stand. And finally, I'll close your eyes till you can't see. I'll bring sexual death unto you for me. Though the letter was addressed to the TV station, it was likely also intended for the police. These are the contents of the letter. I find the newspaper not writing about the poem on Bayan unamusing. A little paragraph would have been enough. I know it's not the news media's fault. The police chief, he kept things quiet and doesn't let the public know there's a psycho running around loose, strangling mostly women. There are seven in the ground. Who will be next? How many do I have to kill before I get a name in the paper or some national attention? Do the cops think that all those deaths are not related? Golly gee, yes, the M.O. is different in each, but look, a pattern is developing. The victims are tied up, most have been women, phone cut, bring some bondage, sadist tendencies, no struggle, outside the death spot, no witness except the Vian's kids. They were very lucky. A phone call saved them. I was going to take the boys and put plastic bags over their heads like I did Joseph and Shirley and then hang the girl. God, oh God, what a beautiful sexual relief that would have been. Josephine, when I hung her, really turned me on. Her pleading for mercy. Then the rope took hold. She helpless, staring at me with wide, terror-filled eyes, the rope getting tighter, tighter. You don't understand these things because you're not under the influence of factor x the same thing that made son of sam jack the ripper havery glattman boston strangler dr h h holmes pantyhose strangler florida hillside strangler head of the west coast and many more infamous character killers which seems senseless but we cannot help it there is no help no cure except death Or being caught and put away it's a terrible nightmare but you see i don't lose any sleep over it after a thing like fox i come home and go about life like anyone else and i will be like that until the urge hits me again it's not continuous and i don't have a lot of time it takes time to set a kill one mistake and it's all over since i about blew it on the phone handwriting is out letter guide is too long and typewriter can be traced, to. My short poem of death and maybe a drawing. Later on, real picture and maybe a tape of the sound will come your way. How will you know me? Before murder or murders, you will receive a copy of the initials BTK. You keep that copy, the original will show up someday on Guess Who. May you not be the unlucky one. P.S., How about some name for me? It's time. Seven down and many more to go. I like the following. How about you? The BTK Strangler, Wichita Strangler, Poetic Strangler, The Bond Age Strangler, or Psycho, The Wichita Hangman, The Wichita Executioner, The Garrett Phantom, The Asphyxiator. Number five, you guess motive and victim. Number six, you found one Shirley Bayon laying belly down on an unmade bed in northeast bedroom, hand tied behind back with black tape and cord, feet and ankles with black tape and legs, ankles tied to west head of the bed, with small of white cord wrapped around legs, hands, arm, finally the neck many times. An off-white plastic bag over her head, loop-on with a paint nightie, was barefooted. She was sick. Use a glass of water and smoke one or two cigarettes. House a total mess. Kids took some toys with them to the bathroom. Bed against east bathroom door. Shows at random with some pre-planning. Motive factor X. Number seven. One Nancy Fox lying belly down on made bed in southwest bedroom, hands tied behind back, with red pantyhose feet together, with yellow nightie, semi-nude with pink sweater and bra, small necklace, glasses on, west dresser, panties below butt, many different than the hosiery. She had a smoke and went to the bathroom before the final act. Very neat housekeeper and dresser rifled, person kitchen, empty paper bag, White coat in living room. Heat up to about 90 degrees. Christmas tree lights on. 90s and hose around the room. Hose bag of orange color. It and hosiery on bed. Driver license gone. Seminole stain on or in blue women wear. Shows at random with little pre planning. Motive factor X. Number eight. Next victim, maybe. You will find her hanging with a wire noose, hands behind her back, with black tape or cord, feet with tape or cord gagged, then cord around the body to the neck, hooded maybe, possible seminal stain in anus or on body, will be chosen at random. Some pre-planning, motive factor X. The poem entitled Shirley Locks was found in the Wichita Eagles dead letter file, whereupon it was submitted to police. At the bottom, BTK promised another poem on Nancy Fox. Rader detailed the game he was playing. Again, I played Cat and Mouse. If you look at the past Cat and Mouse, some of my first page to the police, you could see what typewriter I used. Later, I used block letters from a child's ABC set. My procedure was first to type up the message. Sometimes I would on purpose mess the words up or use bad grammar. The WSU library was a treasure chest of poetry books. I can't tell you which titles I used, but I picked one and wrote the poem about Nancy Fox. The title, Oh Death, is close to the real title. I had the typewriter in the room I used for my study. I also started using a typewriter at WSU. Since I spent a lot of time there, it was easy with less problems at home. I also used the Wichita City Library typewriter. None of the places required ID, just signed for them and paid charge for the usage. I used a different name and scribbled it on their cards. I used KAKETV, so they followed my BTK story fairly well on the news channels. I liked them the best. Once I started the game, it became addictive. It was a power rush to walk the knife edge. So this means letters like Shirley Locke and later the poem on Nancy Fox and the drawing add to that rush. For the drawing, I used slick ads. The models I liked in books and magazines to draw the death scene. Then I photocopied it several times. I left Bright out of this communication because of Kevin Bright. His description of me in the paper was close to the drawing in the paper on Otero's. Someone had seen me driving away in the Otero's car. The sadistic wording of the letter actually played out more in the mind, yet I have acted that out on victims, more of a sadistic mental or emotional abuse. But bottom line, there's sexual gratification. A relief has to be achieved, whether it's from writing a sexy poem, drawing, motel parties, or bondage victims. I do think I have bragged a lot, much like Ted Bundy, and used that in the cat and mouse game, much like a horror story. There is a rush and excitement in words. The pull is so strong that factor X is not really far away. Even at age 70, I didn't actually have a lock on the next victim, but sooner or later, one of the projects would become number eight. Rader has noted that the letters and notes demonstrated how he could compartmentalize himself, or live in a cube, as he put it. He could be a serial killer committing horrific acts against innocent people, but he could also be a responsible family man, diligent employee, churchgoer, community leader, and mentor to the young. I think people who live in the world of cubes are really actors, but actors have personal feelings and strong emotional ties to certain acts. Thus, love for family, for example. It's not fake. In the subsequent years, he sought and gathered intelligence on potential victims, but he was more cautious than ever. If there was any possibility whatsoever that he could get caught or the victim could turn the tables on him, he would abandon his plan. He was still dedicated to his life of being a serial killer so much so that he wrote about being part of an elite club of mass murderers. He included the ones who had attracted his attention due to extensive media coverage. He shoplifted paperback books about them. He also stole true crime magazines. He learned the tricks of the trade from these publications and emulated the figures he read about to some degree. One book that had a profound effect on Raider was called The Tortured Doctor by David Frank, published in 1975. It was about a murderer named H.H. Holmes, also known as Bluebeard. The book described in intricate detail the torture rooms in Holmes' house. Rader nearly committed the entire book to memory. Holmes, more than any other killer Rader read about, influenced him deeply. Rader vowed to himself that he would use Holmes' techniques of getting victims within his control. When they were effective, he would be free to torture, rape, and kill his victims. The book included an illustration of Holmes strangling a young boy who was trapped between his knees. The layout of the rooms was broken down in diagrams, and Holmes' confessions were transcribed verbatim. Holmes intimated that the longer he sat in his prison cell, the more he looked like the devil. Holmes called it a malformation that caused his face to elongate. For Dennis Rader, that book was an academic text for serial killers, even if that had not been the author's intention. Rader was also obsessed with Jack the Ripper. He was the most notorious serial killer of all time and had never faced justice. That was exactly what Rader wanted. For BTK to be responsible for his crimes without a shadow of a doubt, while Dennis Rader lived his life on the other side of the law. Rader was also captivated by Ted Bundy. Rader identified with him in some respects, in terms of his ability to compartmentalize his homicidal alter ego and move among moral people. The period from the early 1970s to the early 1990s marked a golden age for serial killers, possibly starting with Charles Manson. Jeffrey Dahmer's trial established a possible end to this era. Most serial killers appeared in the media, and they were studied closely. Hollywood even made movies based on the phenomenon, such as Silence of the Lambs and Natural Born Killers. BTK would get his own entry in this call of shame, but not until the initials had a fate. Dennis Rader was asked to elaborate on Factor X, the motivating force behind a serial killer's compulsion to commit murder here are his thoughts on factor x factor x i thought hard and deep on this i wrote in the cat and mouse game very early on or said factor x enters my brain where it came from or how i don't know but it controls me without really thinking or even dwelling on x simply the x comes from sex that is bottom line Men and women seek sex in different ways. Most do it normally. But, I bet while in the act, they may fantasize, imagine, picture, and invent things with their partner. The whole sex market is filled with objects, toys, books, magazines, sadomasochistic themes, sex clubs, you name it. It's there. Many people have their secret closet, sex toys or objects, or favorite way of being turned on. Many married men have their girlfriends, second wives, mistresses, etc., to spice their lives up. For some people, the fantasy becomes abnormal, and that relates to the SM theme. Some like to inflict pain and different forms of distress on the other. Some enjoy mild pain and mild discomfort in the act. So, with me, we now have S, no doubt. I can live and honor the white hat and prefer to do that, and most of my life, I had followed the good guy. Yet my secret black hat, or dark side, can come out when I'm sexually aroused. The sadistic theme comes to play. It's that dominating factor, or control, that seems to radiate. So from SEX, we have S for sadistic, or sadomasochistic, and I also enjoy control with minor pain and the person being helpless in the act. I think, like most men, I have rape or mental sex thousands of times upon seeing a female that heightens the thought. Now, the hard porn, I never liked it, and I didn't have any in my collection, nor kitty porn, but I did seek nude females and semi-dressed, or I would draw them that way. To men, Women with partial attire is more appealing than totally nude. You'll notice that even if they are nude in my drawings, they have ropes, cords, tape, chains, or leather somewhere on them. E from SEX would stand for event. The event is the affair, episode, incident, and its results. Now, where did it all come from? Well, sex is normal the one driving force among all living creatures to produce offspring. You could even go beyond that and say the universe has offspring and continue cosmic sex for a new solar system, stars, planets, moon, etc. They die and get reborn, just like living creatures. My theory on abnormal sex. If something happened to me, either physically or mentally, it was probably not one but a combo of events. My parents were loving people. They took care of me, never beat or deprived me. We were poor to begin with, but we climbed out of the hole in the late 50s, finally becoming a notch below middle class. Later, my folks had a good snowbirds retirement day and could buy extra nice objects at home and travel. I had a better relationship with my dad, but yet loved my mom dearly. When I was doing psychological tests for the Air Force, one question popped out. They asked, Your greatest love is... I wrote mom down. Probably country was what they wanted to see, but I did get a secret clearance. Dad never spanked us kids. Mom did sometimes. She used a switch. Those really hurt, and we would run and hide. The chase was on, making mom madder. We were at our grandparents' farm a lot. Grandma Cook would turn discipline matters over to Grandpa Cook. He had a razor strap, but he never used it on me. His voice and manner were all that was needed. Like with my teachers and others, I had too much respect to break the law, or their law on the farm. My mom told me of his strap, and even my cousin Larry told of it. Now, on the Raider's side, Grandma Raider used a switch, never on me, but some of my cousins and brothers got it. Dad told me he had to switch at times. Grandpa Raider used his voice and demeanor, like my dad. I didn't run with the wrong kids, but I did sometimes run with the toughies, and a few friends were just a notch below the law. Most of that came out in high school. I had a Christian upbringing I never used profanity, did not take drugs, no weed or sweet Mary, only drank socially and heavy in my Air Force days. I married a Christian, raised my kids Christian, my folks were always Christian, I had respect for the law and police, yet I turned dark. I guess I'll leave that to the experts to solve the ex-mystery, or at least to shed light on the subject. One thing for the record, Paula and I had normal sex. There were no toys or anything like that. I never asked her to do bondage, it was just a good love between us. But what I wrote here speaks of my fantasy, which may have helped me achieve an orgasm. The other thing to reflect on, the arousal doesn't have to be with humans. It could be with an animal, a doll, or mannequin, pictures, my slick ads, or bondage drawings, or with devices that are made for bondage. I might do something with mannequins in the back room if I were installing an alarm in a business that had them, If you recall in the movie In Cold Blood, they were shopping for restraints, tape, rope, that sort of stuff in a store. It drove me crazy. I had shopping sprees where I bought cord, tape, rope, nuts and bolts, metal pipes, chains, wooden dowels, and things to build simple homemade bondage devices for me to use on myself. Oh, yes, plastic and leather belts or women's pantyhose were big items for me. I even made ball gags after reading about a minotaur who had used ping pong balls as gags and carried one or two in a hit kit. Once I made a mask or used masks in my motel parties, stole over self-gratification rituals at motels when his job sent him out of town. The excitement of buying and building them and trying them out led to good orgasms. It's easy to say that something besides my conscious self caused the dark side. Job loss, boredom, the factor X was so strong. The acts were often fueled by traveling alone. It was a dormant volcano. I prayed many times, asking for help and trying to answer the ultimate question. Why me? I had studied serial killers and I know that, unfortunately, I was one. Christian or not, it was there. Paranoia swept over the Wichita area. An active serial killer was on the loose. He had murdered seven people and vowed to kill more. Police advised citizens to lock their windows and doors. Any strangers in their neighborhood were to be evaluated with suspicion. The killer admitted to being a stalker. He was cautious and crafty, but would not come across as heedy or creepy. There was no way to know where he would strike next. The police had no leads on suspects. They had no idea how to stop him. Tips came in about neighbors and spouses, whose behavior was perceived as suspicious, but none of these leads led to the killer's door. Dennis Rader continued to stalk and even managed to gain entry into homes. But circumstances always had a way of derailing his plans. He launched new projects in other cities, such as Newton, Topeka, Manhattan, Dodge City, Pittsburgh, Great Bend. Wherever Raider had jobs in other towns, he would see possibilities for new projects. In the meantime, his career trajectory was downgraded from serial killer to petty criminal. A petty thief at times I was. Once or twice, I took money from the church. Occasionally, if I saw a paperback about a serial killer or murder thriller, I would shoplift it. Or if I needed an item for my hit kit, I would take it. At one time, while installing a security camera at Leakers, I borrowed some B-rated videos to view and download some sexual fantasies for me. Later, I returned them to the video bins, wiped clean. I did not want people to have a vile list of what movies I checked out. But I did not really like pornography. I preferred the slick ads. Raider also became a peeping Tom. He watched his female neighbors. He continued to cross-dress and engaged in autoerotic asphyxiation with a rope. Whenever Paula was away, he would indulge in these practices. He would adorn a woman's silky slip to play the role of victim. One day, while admiring himself in the mirror in his bondage contraption, Paula came in unexpectedly. There wasn't enough time to hide. A very personal matter happened between Paula and me, Rader said. She caught me in bondage at home. She was very angry. I had spare time on my hands. I favored the hallway and bathroom areas for doing this. I liked the full shower mirror so I could see. I rigged up a chair and ropes and even had a remote way to work the camera to catch pictures. When she came home, I had quite a few items out and there was no way to clean up fast. I was in the southwest bedroom watching a female neighbor across the street. She wore a tank top and she was tan and trim. I'd had many sexual fantasies about her. I had some bondage items on. Paula was upset when she saw me, but she seemed to think things out. She called or visited a professional at the VA where she once had worked while she did her calls and thinking we were not on the best wife and husband terms. She was also worried about our children and the potential harm to them from my behavior. That was her biggest concern. I think after she called and talked to the professional and read a self-help book, something along the lines of everything you always wanted to know about sex, She seemed to be more understanding. Paula kept her book in her own hidey hole. I found it one day while cleaning. She had marked a chapter in it about bondage, S&M, etc. I think this helped her understand me. Though Paula was greatly displeased to learn about her husband's little hobby, she decided against separating. She didn't want to upset their children. She also didn't want anybody at their church to know. They were a very prominent family in the church, so it would not be easy to live that down. She found a way to adjust to this new reality. Rader concluded this matter by saying, She seemed to accept it. We didn't talk about it. Their second child, Carrie Lynn, was born on June 13, 1978. Rader was overjoyed about her birth. She was a delight to the world, he said, and for Paula, for now she had a girl a daughter she could share her life with. I was overjoyed to be a proud dad of a healthy boy and now a healthy girl. Many years later, after Raider was arrested and convicted for his crimes as BTK, Carrie Lynn wrote a memoir about her experience of being Raider's daughter. It is entitled, A Serial Killer's Daughter, My Story of Faith, Love, and Overcoming. Caring for his new baby was not enough to convince him to cease his interest in bondage. He continued to prowl. Wichita Police Department Case Number 05CR498 On April 28, 1979, 63-year-old Anna Williams arrived at home around 11 p.m. She lived at 615 South Pinecrest. When she entered her home, She found that someone had broken in and went through her personal effects. Her phone line had been cut. Police noted that the intruder entered through a basement window. Clothes and a wire were found adjacent to the bed. Some jewelry and money was missing. There were no leads as to who could have committed the act. This changed on June 15th, when Ms. Williams received several items in the mail that were addressed to her husband who was deceased. The package had been opened by her daughter. There was a photocopied poem, a drawing of a woman who was nude, bound, and sexually violated with her hands and feet tied to a pole, a scarf that had belonged to Williams, a piece of her stolen jewelry. The poem that was originally addressed to Louis, her husband, went as follows. Oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? T'was the perfect plan of deviant pleasure so bold on that spring night, my inner feeling hot with propension of the new awakening season, warm, wet with inner fear and rapture, my pleasure of entanglement like new vines so tight. Oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? Drop of fear fresh spring rain would roll down from your nakedness. He sent a lofty fever that burns within. In that small world of longing, fear, rapture, and desperation, the games we play fall on devil ears. Fantasies spring forth, mounts to storm fury, then winter calm at the end. Oh, Anna, why didn't you appear alone? Now, in another time span, I lay with sweet enrapture, garments across most private thought. Bed of spring, moist grass, clean before the sun, enslaved with control, warm wind scenting the air, sunlight, sparkle, tears, and eyes, so deep and clear. Alone again, I trod in past memory of mirrors, and ponder why your number eight was not. Oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? The police found out that a similar envelope was sent to K-A-K-E TV. It was collected the day before at 4 a.m. from a white male around 5, 8, and 30 years old. He told the postal clerk to put it in the box for K-A-K-E. It contained copies of the poem and a drawing that was sent to Ms. Williams. Included as well were a few items taken from her home. Featured on the paper with the poem was a stylized BTK symbol. The B on its side, rounded part down and provocatively conjoined with a T and a K. He was branding himself. Though not immediately, Dennis Rader eventually claimed credit for the crime. He took the usual precautions. Just like with all other aspects of the crime, he followed a routine. Part of my B.E. is to take items. Such as jewelry and clothes. I also cut the phone line, my trademark. I used tape on the window where I broke in, and perhaps a glass cutter, which I now carried in my BE kit. Since the house was dark when I came, I thought perhaps she was asleep. Further, I saw a car in the garage, so I tried a cat burglar approach, going through the basement window. Going through the basement window, but the house was empty. The clothes and wire were for the victim, which I laid out or beside the bed. I also scribbled something on the bathroom mirror, but that is not in the report. I suppose they missed it. I don't recall exactly what it was, but something like BTK was here, or mirror, mirror on the wall. I might have been thinking about the lipstick minotaur that I'd heard of William Herons, who scribbled with lipstick a plea to be caught. I used lipstick I found there to write it. After drinking too much, I sometimes scribbled in men's bathrooms. BTK was here, in very small print. I photocopied all of my cat-and-mouse paperwork. I took a similar package to the post office and had it weighed, so I would have the right postage. There was some write-up of me mailing the packages boldly right in front of the postal clerk, but that's not true. I did not do that. I wasn't the person the clerk remembered. This happened before all the bomb scares. You could drop a package with the right postage off in a mailbox, no questions asked. I had them weighed, then applied stamps later on, and then mailed them. No one saw me. Not knowing the true ID of the person or persons living there, I believe I looked up their name and address in a cross-directory I found at the city library. I used these directories for prowling and trolling checks, and sometimes for phone calls. I had no way of knowing the girl I saw was not Anna, or that the husband was deceased. If he had been there in the home when I entered, there would have been no Kevin Bright this time. I would have tied him with a strong cord, take a plastic bag on his head, or shot him after the female bound and secured. I would not make that mistake again. I also mailed the package to my favorite news source, KAKE TV. I grew up in the 50s, so I saw a lot of programs on KAKE TV, like westerns and programs to catch the after school kids' attention. Later, I was sexually attracted to Susan Peters, an anchor. The documents later mailed to media outlets had usually been photocopies. Police consulted with the Xerox Corporation to determine which type of machine would have been used. Rader found out about this and used several copiers throughout the area. Rader graduated from Wichita State University with a bachelor's degree in administration of justice. His evening studies were used as a smoke screen for his late night absences. They also proved to be an accident when he took care to eliminate as many traces of himself from the crime scene, as possible. I graduated in May 1979, and it was easy to slip back into the Christian world. The kids were growing like weeds, and a head of the household was needed. Paula needed to be home, so all responsibility landed on me. I had no time to be away from home. Being busy with the family kept the dark side at bay. The next year, we got a pet dog, Patches, A Brittany Spaniel, I built a fence in the backyard, did a lot of gardening and enjoyed life with my wife and two kids. The job with ADT gave me opportunities to be out of town, staying in motel rooms. So I would take the bondage items with me or shop for new ones at the town where I was doing a job. Still greater risk exposure. Once again, a second time when Paula came home, I was in full bondage in the hallway in a slip with a rope. I tried to hide it in the bathroom, but there was too much out to hide. She exploded into a fury. I cleaned the mess up and told her I would leave. I was so embarrassed and ashamed. I slept a day or two in the living room. She was thinking about what to do. We didn't talk, only small talk in front of the kids. She finally told me that if she ever caught me again, she would file for divorce. And I would have to leave the house for good. I understood. I vowed I would never do this at home again. Rader had been disempowered and emasculated by a woman. It was humiliating. He hated it. We finally came back to a good relationship. As for me, I quit the hardcore bondage in the house. But in time, the impulse to continue was too strong. So I designed a place in the attached shed for bondage and kept my items under the house. Plus, I updated my hidey hole, the one in the hallway, with a false bottom. Whatever big bondage I did was off my property. I never did it again full bore at home. It was too risky. Dennis promised Paula that he would stop the cross-dressing and self-bondage, but he only changed the location. These incidents were perfect times to seek professional help, I know. But I don't recall if Paula asked me to do anything like this. Maybe she did, and I told her I would work it out. Another source said Paula gave me some self-help books to read. Now, after all these years, I believe I really should have gone to someone. Many families have secrets. But I thought if I told someone about the other things I was doing in order to really get help, they would be obligated to tell the police. I wonder if, after I was arrested... Paula told the police about these incidents. I'll bet she did tell the professional that helped her after I was arrested. I feel terrible that she had to endure all I caused. Though he always took trophies from the scenes of his crimes, he said he didn't think much about his victims. Occasionally there were reminders, but it was not an overly thought-out process. If I had any deep thoughts about them, it happened most often at motel parties. At that time in motel rooms I reviewed what items I had for my hidey holes. I looked at the newspaper clippings about the hits at the driver's licenses any photos I had taken and their personal items. I did have Otero's watch for a while and the radio, but they didn't really bring back the incident. They were just something I could use. During the anniversaries, especially if the news played it up, I often got rid of the victim's items. Now fucked had some nice feminine underclothes. Her slips I favored. I had some underpants from Vion and clothes from B.E.'s or P.J.'s that had not worked into successful hits. Like with the holidays, I might occasionally think about them, and as that day anniversary came closer, I thought more and more about it. At a motel party, I might wear some of the underclothes as I would do bondage, relating their terror into my mind. As I was tied up, gagged with plastic bag, and in the end, self-gratification. I did take pictures of me in their clothes and added that to the hidey hole stash. Once the holiday was over, it all got boxed up and put away. In a way, it was most exciting to leave these items alone and renew my memories only, occasionally. Brian joined the Cub Scouts in 1983, and Dennis became a scout leader. He referred to the scout troop as a, quote, white hat activity. The same was true of his involvement in church activities with Paula. His participation in these pursuits affirmed his belief that he was basically a good person. He was quoted on another occasion as saying, It was not until 1984 that Factor X rose again. A release has to be achieved. Wichita law enforcement marked 1984 as the 10th anniversary of the Otero murders. Research into the personalities and habits of serial killers, including interviews with actual mass murderers, dictate that there was no way BTK would stop killing. Definitely not for so long. The FBI had concluded that for a serial killer, murder was an addiction, one that was worth the risk of getting caught. Law enforcement's criminal science professionals made their best attempt at constructing a personality profile of BTK. They concluded that he is sadistic, controlling, and superficial. As entertainment, he read detective magazines and pornography. He enjoyed BDSM with his partner and spent a lot of time driving around. He was a lone wolf type with few, if any, friends. He drove an ordinary car. He was likely in his mid-thirties. He lived within a few miles of the crime scenes and had probably known at least one of the Oteros well. He was good at his job. It was the position that required him to wear a uniform. He was only intermittently employed. He probably had a military background and had done research into the methods of law enforcement. He carried weapons. At some point, he would be observed criticizing law enforcement officials in general and would condemn the investigation. The aforementioned profile was purely speculative and offered no real assistance to the officers who were investigating the BTK case. They were advised to search for detective magazines in the event that they had to search a home. Otherwise, criminal behavior consultants had little of value to offer the Wichita Police Department. Meanwhile, Dennis Rader continued to prowl and plan. He would dispose of evidence from time to time. He would size up everybody he met to determine if they were vulnerable enough for him to violate their inner sanctum and kill them. He had a neighbor named Marine Hedge who would give him a friendly wave from time to time. As he waved back, he would fantasize about what her neck would look like with a rope tied around it. The cauldron began to boil. As Raider reflected, It had been a long time from the last time Factor X exploded in my world and shattered someone else's. Wichita Police Department, case number 05CR498. 53-year-old Marine Hedge did not arrive for a shift at a coffee shop at Wesley Medical Center on April 27, 1985. This was noted by co-workers and management as being out of character. One colleague contacted her son. He went to her home at 6254 Independence in Park City. Her car was not in the driveway. The son was not concerned at this time. The following day, Marine was neither present at home nor work. Her son called the police. Officers dispatched to the scene discovered that her phone line had been cut. In establishing a timeline, investigators interviewed a male companion, we spent time with Marine on the evening of April 26th. He left her home at 1 a.m. He was likely the last person to see her alive. On May 2nd, Marine's car was located in a shopping center at 21st and Woodlawn. It was locked. It had been there since April 27th. It was muddy, though partially wiped clean. Inside the car were two bed covers, a purple bedspread, a tan curtain, and an electric blanket. Marine's purse was found the next day at 37th and 143rd. Later, the body was found in a ditch near Webb and 53rd North. It was covered with grass, twigs, and a small tree. The body of a dead dog and a pair of knotted pantyhose lay nearby. Cause of death was concluded to be strangulation. Aside from the trademark of cutting the phone line, there were no other indications that this crime was committed by BTK. He normally left his victims in their home. Marine's male friend was, for the time being, the prime suspect. Rader heard a great deal of neighborhood gossip regarding Marine Hedge's murder. They were as suspicious of her male companion as the police were. With gossip comes conjecture and falsehood. Dennis Rader was the only living person. Who knew the truth about how marine hedges demise was brought about on the night in question he was due to work with his boy scout troop he started his evening that way but informed them soon after that he was unwell and had to head home he planned to use his activity with the boy scouts as an alibi he recounted what happened after he cut the phone line about the time i reached her bedroom and discovered she was not home I heard a car door slam, and voices. She had those hanging beads at the entrance of her hallway. I rushed through them. They were moving as she and her friend started to enter. I quickly tried to stop that movement so she wouldn't notice, and moved to the southeast bedroom, spare room closet. I hid there. The man stayed for a while and then left. Rader was relieved. They were there for maybe an hour or so. It was a long time. The man stayed for a while and then left. Rader was relieved. They were there for maybe an hour or so. It was a long time. Rader waited impatiently for him to leave. If the man had become intimate with Marine, with designs on staying for the night, Rader had a plan on how to work around that. If he had not left and probably went to bed with her, I would have flipped on the bedroom light held him at gunpoint, handcuffed him, tied his feet, and gagged him. I would have then bound her and moved her to another room. I'd return and use a pillow or plastic bag and cord on him, to be quiet to M.H.'s ears. She knew me, but I would have had the mask on. But she might have recognized my voice, so with an altered voice I probably would have strangled her. Then, with no fears of someone coming by early in the morning, I would do the bondage and pictures or remove her to the church as originally planned. Upon investigation, they would find one murdered male and a missing M.H. and car. The problem with this was that the KBI would be called in and a real investigation started. I don't think the Park City Police were very good at cops, hometown boys. So in theory, I should remove both of them as hostages and later kill them away from the house area and hide their bodies, but could I control two people in the dark? It was a long wait. My time frame clock was running down. Then he left. Marine retired to her bedroom for the night. I waited till the wee hours of the morning. I then proceeded to sneak into her bedroom. She didn't wake up. I flipped the lights on in the bathroom. She woke up and screamed, and I jumped on the bed and strangled her manually. She tried to fight, but she was no match. I would have taken her out of the house alive, gagged, and in handcuffs if I could have. But things didn't work out that way. The goal was to get pictures. After that, since I was in a sexual fantasy, I went ahead and stripped her and tied her up. I put handcuffs on. I put her on a blanket and went through her purse. I needed the car key and took some personal items in the house while I figured out how I was going to get her out of there. I went to the kitchen and got a glass of water, also my trademark. I carefully wiped it clean and put it back. Eventually, I moved her to the trunk of the car. After Dennis Rader's arrest, he was interviewed, and after describing his strangulation of Marine Hedge, he told the police, I think I'm a pretty nice guy. You know, I raised a family and kids, but there's a mean streak in me. There has to be for me to do this. Sometimes, when that strikes out, it's bad. You don't want to be the victim. As usual, Raider took souvenirs her keys, her driver's license, jewelry, and some underwear. When he wrapped her body in blankets for transport to her car, he was shocked at just how heavy dead weight is. It's like a concrete box. This was the first time I had ever moved a body. I worried about my back as I lifted her out of the trunk. I took the car over to Christ Lutheran Church where I stashed some items. To prepare for the murder, he brought along some large sheets of black plastic. He used them to black out the windows so he could take photos of the corpse. Her body was bound in ropes and handcuffs. With the black plastic, there was no risk of being observed by pedestrian traffic. I tied her up in different positions and took pictures. I did not use the altar. I was bad and disturbed but I still had respect for some items of God's house. Finally, I had a real bondage picture with a victim using a Polaroid that I had shoplifted. But daylight was coming fast. I knew of a spot on 53rd between Greenwich and Webb that people dumped trash at on the roadside. So I drove her car and body to it quickly. It was a muddy road. Then I had a key problem. I usually took the key ring apart to make it easier for me to find a single key in a hurry, and I dropped the key down a dash where I couldn't reach it with gloves on. In a hurry, I broke the windshield to reach it. I knew the cops would wonder what that was about. I left the body in the ditch's north side, covered it with brush and tree limbs, but forgot to remove the cord. Rader was asked by police if he killed a dog. He told them he hadn't noticed it. The only element of the crime about which Rader felt remorse was the fact that he brought the corpse to his church. He felt this act defiled his house of worship. Wichita Police Department, case number 05CR498. On September 16, 1986, at 1154 a.m., one Gordon Wagerly called 911 to report that his wife, Vicky had been murdered inside their home. When he came home for lunch, he found his wife tied up on the bedroom floor his two-year-old son appeared to be unharmed. Wagerley noted that as he drove home, he saw someone driving a car that closely resembled his own gold 1978 Monte Carlo in the opposite direction. When he arrived home, he found that the car was missing. First responders were dispatched to 2404 West 13th Street. Vicki's hands had been tied behind her, and her feet were bound with a leather lace. Her body lay between the bed and the wall. Her jeans were unzipped. Her breasts were exposed. A small pocket knife lay adjacent to her head. Gordon used the knife to cut a knotted nylon stocking and knotted leather shoelace from around her neck. All of these items were on the floor. The police did not take any photographs at the scene, and all attempts to revive Vicki failed. The Monte Carlo was found abandoned in a store parking lot at 13th and Edwards two blocks from the Waggerly home. Due to what he called his social obligations, Raider didn't have as much time to stalk potential victims. He decided his lunch hour was a good time to kill someone. That was when he spotted Vicky, the 28-year-old mother of a small boy, as he drove around. He observed her at home, getting out of her car. He spent the next three weeks stalking her. In the stalking time frame, I parked at Indian Hills South Parking Lot hidden in direct view, thus I could observe her coming and going at lunch. This depended on me working in that area close enough to swing by. The local branch main supervisor had left the company as a corporate raider took over. He took a lot of material, namely accounts and photocopies with him. Me, like a lot of employees, were hurt and confused. In the transition, I had free time. I used that time for the hit. What's the theory? When the cat's away, the mice will play? I decided on a ruse as a telephone repairman. I already wore technician-type clothes. I used a Southwestern Bell telephone logo that I had cut from a phone book and taped it to a hard hat and an ID that I had made. I drove my personal car there, not the company truck, parked and walked across the street in broad daylight, never looking directly at anyone. I wore sunglasses, carried a briefcase, and kept the hat down close to my eyes. First, I went next door. I spoke to the couple there, keeping the sunglasses on, and asked some tech-type questions. This way, it would look like I was going through the neighborhood. I'm surprised that nothing was ever said about them. Perhaps the police didn't want to report any findings to protect them. If there had been younger people in that house, or a curious type of person, I may have decided against the hit that day. Or just used it as a practice or to get more information on the other hand if a lone female had answered the door instead of a couple she might have become B.H. number nine instead of mrs wagerly one reason i picked wagerly's was the covered porch the door was less visible to drive by as i approached it i could hear piano sounds so she became pj piano organ music would have been better I also think that when I walked by during prowl and troll days, I had heard her play. I had hoped to learn to play it, yet it has a mystical power on me. My grandparents' raider had one. As a child, I would play on it. Organ and piano music in Minotaur movies held an appeal. The music from Phantom of the Opera very sexually exciting to me. At church, while I was doing maintenance, the organist would play organ and piano. She never knew how close she came to becoming a victim so many times. I worked my brain over trying to figure out a way to get her, and yet still have a good cover story. She became P.J. organ or P.J. Church in the prowl and troll period, and even closer as I worked out details on the hit. I went at Regerly's door, knocked, and asked her if I could come check her telephone lines inside. She let me in. Upon entering the Wagerly residence, I saw a baby in the playpen in the living room, and I could hear dogs barking. There were at least two large dogs outside in Wagerly's backyard. They were really loud and scratching at the back door. If they got in, what a mess. She showed me where the telephone was. I had a fake instrument and pretended to fiddle with it as a phone tester. When she looked away, I drew my 25 caliber auto. She was scared. She started to cry. She said her husband was coming home for lunch. He would be there soon. She asked about the baby. I ordered her to go back to the bedroom with me. I said I was going to have to tie her up. She was very upset. I first used a stocking from her dresser, but after I tied her hands, she broke that, and we started fighting. She fought hard. She fought like a hellcat. She scratched my nose and face. There, I left DNA, unknown at the time. But later, I worry about it. Also, had to cosmetically cover the wound at home. Much like BH number five, Catherine Bright, women can fight hard, but no way was I going to knife or shoot her. I finally gained on her and put her down. I strangled her with a nylon stocking. I thought she was dead, but apparently she wasn't. She wasn't moving. I opened her clothes a little bit and took some quick photos of them, three of them. I did not have handcuffs as I had thrown them away after MH and had not purchased another pair. I took some trophies to use later for bondage. Mrs. Wagerly lay east of the bed, her head to south, as I left her. The bedroom windows were east of her. I was afraid the east neighbor may have heard the noise or seen some activity in her bedroom. A reason to rush and get out of there. The dogs in the back were raising a lot of cane, and the windows were all open in the house. She had mentioned something about her husband coming home, so I got out of there pretty quick. Not to complain, but the law of averages didn't play well for me in the day hits. I guess there are too many unaccountable things in the victim's life. Only with the Oteros did I have time. Even on the PJ Mustang after Waggerly, which was almost identical to Waggerly, when I acted like a phone man, she seemed to get nervous and speak about boarding people who lived there coming home soon. After the mess at Wagerly's, Bright's, and Byron's, I took no chances with that project and left quickly. I left the baby alone. I didn't touch him. He didn't see anything. I put everything in my briefcase. I had already gone through her purse, got the keys to the car, and used her car for my getaway. I recall driving away from the area, hearing police and ambulance vehicles heading northbound as I headed south near Riverside Hospital. I had been to the hospital before, visiting relatives, patients, Christmas caroling or aiding services, fire alarm. It was a feeling of power and control to take a car. It was also a way to move out of there quickly and less chance of someone remembering a male walking away carrying a black briefcase. It was a busy street. Many would remember that mail after hearing about the crime. Could it be that in the troll and prowl days, my brain automatically remembered the Monte Carlo from M.H.'s house? Was that what caught my attention to Mrs. Weggerly in the first place? The references of life seemed to play out in my life of correspondences. I called the black hole theory of DLR. If you crossed paths with me, there could be future dark things or events to come. I took Wagerly's purse, the one that held her keys and driver's license, or it could be that I dumped it all into my briefcase. Before leaving the car parked on Edwards, I removed the driver's license, etc., and stuffed the rest under the car seat. I drove west on 13th Street. Probably Mr. Wagerly passed me at that point. Then I went north to 21st and east to Bronze Ice Cream Store to put the briefcase in a dumpster. Then I went to a strip mall area at the northeast corner of 21st and Meridian. I left the hard hat in a trash can near a muffler shop. I cleaned out the car before leaving the area. This is the same area of P.J. Twin Lakes, the bank teller of late 1973 or early 1974. I drove west out of Wichita, then along country roads. I threw items away from the crime scene or things I had used. I stopped somewhere and got rid of my clothes. Then I redressed in ADT clothes, walked to my car at Indian Hills, and returned to work in the early afternoon.